Sunday. It's Sunday, which means it's it, the main course. It's Sunday, it's Easter, and it's opening day. Ooh, right. Yankees, Red Sox. All sorts of resurrection today. Wow. Yeah, well, we want to find out if it was a real resurrection or not. I've heard that maybe his metabolism slowed down. We talking about JC now? Yep. I think he might not have truly been dead. But anyway, that's just... What's that? Cryo. Cryo. He was in cryo. Well, we want to talk about any herbs that slow down metabolism later. But uh, this is going to be an amazing show. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Mike Edison. We have a great show. We're going to have um, Ben Flanner on, who is um, you know, a real inspiration to a uh, gardening movement around the country. Um, uh, it's, it's a, uh, there's Scott. Oh, there he comes in. Uh, we got Scott from Rub, uh, which I really want to talk about gardens i mean and farms and like fresh farmers market movement versus barbecue which versus why does it always have to be a battle with you patrick (laughs) well it's just it's funny because barbecue seems like the cuisine that most that least embraces the sustainable movement because it's so steeped in tradition well you know i you know i thought that um the sustainable thing was so hippie based until i found out that a lot of you know sustainable movement the green movement are like you a purveyor of meat you don't make hippie food. Big pork belly isn't pr- traditional hippie food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just por- pure pork belly. So um, Ben Flanner, we got Scott from Rub Barbecue, one of the best barbecue restaurants in New York. We're going to have Eric Hoffner come in from the Orion Institute to talk about mushrooms, maybe with Ben a little bit. Then, of course, Steve Pope is doing his Heritage Poultry Recipe segment at 1 o'clock. Um, and then Mike uh, got us an awesome... An awesome guest, Jason Boog. Jason Boog, who is uh, the publishing editor of Media Bistro and in charge of the Galley Cat uh, blog. And another thing that's happening besides all this Easterness and opening dayness is uh, iPadness happening today. Uh-huh. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and the death of print, which I hope has been greatly exaggerated. Well, yeah, hopefully it didn't happen, but um, hopefully it's not dead yet. Well, we should cover a little bit of business. We're sponsored by TechServe. TechServe is New York's premier authorized Apple reseller and service provider, serving individual customers, creative professionals, and Fortune 100 companies, not even 500 companies, Fortune 100 companies. TechServe has built a solid reputation on its expertise in technology, sales, and service. As a company that believes in honest and forthright business practices, TechServe is a proud sponsor of HRN in the promotion of sustainable lifestyles. To support sustainability in New York, TechServe is holding an e-waste recycling drive this Saturday, April 10th from 10 to 4 p.m. For more information, go to www.techserve.com. Well, very, very exciting. So, Mike, just give us a little uh, opening, some opening thoughts. It's Jesus was resurrected. It's opening. Er, he was erected. That's Brandon a, that's a big saying. day, the Jesus resurrection. No, not not uh, being of the faith, being of the tribe. Being um, of the tribe, being responsible so, for him was, be going under to begin yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. Well, my people na- nailed him to the cross on Friday <laughs> and thought we had finished the job. Um, you know, the whole thing doesn't work uh, if he doesn't, doesn't resurrect. I mean, that's the whole myth. You know, it's uh, the myth of the dying and resurrected God. It's not a new thing. You know, it goes back as far as I know. I'm no expert on this, at least to Osiris and, you know, the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. Um, If he doesn't come back, it doesn't work. 
doesn't work. Well, let me ask, do you think possibly like he just like lowered his metabolism a little bit and because they weren't experts in science, like maybe he wasn't dead at all? You know, I'm romantic in a way that I that I would like to believe in miracles. Um, I'm not the kind of guy who goes to the magic show and says, hey, that rabbit was already in the guy's hat. Hey, he's not really song right. a lady in half. I don't want to be that guy. I don't You're be, kayfabe all the I way. I don't want to be cynical. I'm being kayfabe. But as, as, a, as a Christian today... <laughs> do you guys know what kayfabe is? It's the uh, secret understanding that wrestling is it's the it's the it's the pretense that everything you see is real that what you see is what's really going on we all know better than that so like when vince mcmahon like peed in his pants <laughs> you really thought he's scared uh i don't know you know we're on this uh, whole miracle thing i'd like to believe in miracles what about you guys <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice i mean <clears throat> it'd be uh nice to believe in miracles but uh <laughs> Uh, not so far. <laughs> not so far. I haven't seen. Have you ever seen a miracle, well, Patrick? I'm about life? to see one on Tuesday when Brooklyn Grange, uh, you know, takes uh, <laughs> a new step in the uh, right direction. Because I mean, that's one of our big themes for today is, you know, punching through new ideas. Like people don't get why roof gardens are important. Ten years ago, no one even thought of that idea. It seems, and now all of a sudden, there's an army of uh, soldiers. Pushing yeah. for it and punching them through is exactly what what we're doing. It's it's not easy trying to convince a landlord to put over a million pounds of soil on their roof, but um, we're going for it this week. Well, that's crazy. Well, let's get on a little bit just so we know who's going to be sitting. At. Jason Bogle will be there later. Um, Eric will call in. Steve will call in later. But um, we want to talk about it. Tell us a little bit about Brooklyn Grange, and uh, you know about this rooftop farm. Well, Brooklyn Grange is going to be a 40,000-square-foot rooftop farm. Um, it's an idea that we birthed last year with rooftop farms. And um, we are seeking huge flat warehouses that are strong, that can hold a little bit of weight of soil, and big open spaces that have great sun, sun exposure. And it's an, it's an excellent way to grow food right here in the city, right where it's consumed. And there's a lot of other good benefits for the, for the roof itself. Um, and for the city, it's it's a space that would be hot, that would have sun beating on it all day long, that we can cool it a little bit with the soil. There's energy savings. There's less trucking. We can compost. I mean, you can see this place should be a lot hotter, but because there's a roof, I mean, a, all the soil on the roof of the shipping container at Roberta's, it feels quite nice. Yeah, it cuts down on the <laughs> AC usage for the Heritage yeah. Radio. It's like 10, uh, 10 degrees cooler in here probably than it is outside. Well, this is clearly an idea whose time has come. Yeah, I don't. You think you know you're using space to grow stuff? Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer to me. I mean, sure, it seems a little weird to be farming in Brooklyn. Of course, this was all farmland at one point. But even look where we are now. People who haven't been to Bushwick and haven't seen, especially a lot of flat buildings and old warehouses. And Roberta's was what it was an auto body shop, I think. Yeah, right. And everything here has sort of been scavenged and recycled and uh, built up from, from zero. And the radio station itself is two shipping containers for people who haven't been here before. Uh, two old shipping containers that are sort of jammed together in L shape and is now a recording studio with the garden on top yeah it's really unbelievable so back to this thing you were saying earlier i mean um can any roof sustain all that soil i mean how do you go and prove that a roof is able to withstand such pressure uh not every roof can sustain it but you have to get it checked out by a structural engineer and and it's just a matter of math because we know exactly what the soil weighs we know it weighs wet after a heavy rainstorm and then we kind of retrofit the numbers, and based on the calculations of an engineer, we decide if it can handle it. Now, there's also some lightweight soils. Um, I just met Paul Menkowitz, a 
Professor Columbia, who has a, a company called the uh, Institute called the Gaia Institute up in the Bronx. And he's experimenting. This is awesome. He's combining compost with styrofoam. Use styrofoam from guys from the Fulton Fish Market when they have scrap from their fish bins. And then he crushes it down and mix it, mixes it, treats the styrofoam with something to make it so it can handle a little bit more water and seals up. Um, but that could re- potentially reduce the weight of the soil by about half, hmm. which would probably almost double the potential roofs that we could farm. But why? Do roots take form in, in styrofoam? I mean, um, is yeah. it the same function? We, we have to keep testing it because currently the the best way that we know of right now is to mix the compost with expanded shale, which is also a lightweight um, sort of a pebbly rock. And it has a lot of different purposes in the soil. It allows a little more air to come through. Roots need gaps between the, the growing medium. They don't actually grow in the dirt. They grow around the dirt. So hmm. so it helps. And that also, because it's lightweight and porous, that decreases the density of it. Hmm. So styrofoam would take it even a notch further. Really, really cool. Well, let's introduce our next guest, and then we'll get into the real in-depth issues uh, on each of these subjects. But uh, we have uh, Scott from uh, really one of the best barbecue, consistently one of the best uh, barbecue restaurants in New York, Rub Barbecue, on 23rd between 7th and 8th? Yeah, between 7th and 8th, a little closer to 7th, actually. Cool. And uh, just tell us real briefly about that barbecue place. Like, when did it start, and like, what... uh, cooker do you use actually we just opened or we opened uh five years ago two days ago um it was so we've been open for five years now um we use we do a championship style barbecue which means we have no like regional specialty uh we pretty much do like the best of what we can do um we have uh four j and r smokers out of texas they are hickory burn or we burn hickory in them uh, they're full wood burning uh, electric smokers, mm-hmm. um, and the the advantage of the electricity, as I think we talked about last time, is the the lack of mercaptan in the in the gas. So you get no uh, yeah, no funky what, flavors in your. Cube. What's wood burning electric? Uh, well, the electric is basically it's like electric convection oven, and then you have a a firebox in the bottom that you burn wood in to add flavor, and it kind of adds a little bit of heat, but mostly for the flavor um, because of like the regulations in new york city were not we weren't allowed to have like full sized logs so it's like a restricted firebox so well, this is cool that traditionally been one of the biggest problems with barbecue in the city right yeah and the epa and uh and you know the amount of smoke that these things produce i think uh, yeah well we have a, a system a filtration system in our exhaust that takes care of all the smokes so that way all our neighbors don't smell like uh you know you don't blow it out on the 23rd street <laughs> no actually i wanted to like hanging out here <laughs> yeah. yeah i wanted to uh to actually pipe it out on 23rd street because it's such great advertising but i mean that's how i always find barbecue places is like by the smell but i guess uh, they didn't want to go for that so are you limited by the styles of barbecue you can do because it's in a city like are there just certain things like you can't do i've been able to do pretty much everything i've done cool. uh whole hogs i've done i can go up to about i think uh the biggest i've done is 80 and that was just squeezing it in the smoker Mm -hmm. Uh, i had to like bend it up a little bit it wasn't the prettiest one but it it worked but uh, i've done uh lamb shoulders i um i i I don't think there's anything i couldn't any style texas style oh yeah easily yeah i mean we just don't really do a a, a regional style so that way because it's really tough especially with you know the the diverse uh, population of the city you get people from all over the south and when you do you i think if you try to stick to one regional style you always get somebody like oh this wasn't like the way i had it when mm-hmm. you know i was when i lived you know say north carolina or whatever so it's it, it it gives us a little bit more uh i wouldn't well, i guess freedom i guess it'd be you know 
to be able to just make good barbecue, not worry about sticking to some uh, regional uh, style. Cool. Well, we'll definitely come back. So let's. Uh, I want to say we're engineered and produced. Unbelievable. By uh, Nat Wiener. So, uh, Nat, I know you're busy in there. Um, We're going to take a break, but we do want people to call in because one of the things that are going to be done is we're going to hopefully raise some money for Brooklyn Grange, the farm, and uh, people will get special prizes and all that if they give money. So, Nat, what's the call-in number again? Uh, 718-497-2128. Operators are standing by. (laughs) (laughs) Which is also Nat. (laughs) So, uh, that's amazing. And, uh, well, we have uh, tons of questions uh, that I want to ask about. And also, Scott, you're from upstate New York. Yes, I am. So, whereabouts? Uh, Actually, I'm from a town called Trumansburg, which is about 10 miles north of Ithaca. So, you know, there's a whole thing of access to good fruits and vegetables uh, that we'll talk about. And I want to talk about barbecue, which seems, you know, very different as a cuisine than like fresh herbs and things. You know, is there a disconnect there? And, you know, why isn't more sustainable stuff used? Not at your place, oh, yeah. but in general barbecue around the country. Well, I think the the biggest reason right now is cost. I mean, every, mm-hmm. if you go to a barbecue restaurant, I mean, especially down south, you're, if you pay, you're not going to pay more than $5 for a sandwich. Yeah. And you can't buy, I mean, it's right now, it's just the, with the pricing it's really tough i mean even for us to even with the prices we charge we can't always right. do you know the best stuff so uh, let's take a 30 second break and we'll come and uh come back and get into some of the issues talk more about farming We're back. Uh, we're here with Ben Flanner. We're here with Scott. Uh, why is your name, last name is Smith? Smith. Um, Mike Edison. We have a bunch more people coming on the show. It's going to be a great show. But uh, Ben, let's start with you. Why the resistance? Why are people make it so hard to, you know, change the city and reuse things in different ways? Like, why is well, it so hard? Well, I, th- I think there's a couple reasons. The the I'd say the primary resistance that we find from landlords is the fact that. Everybody in Brooklyn thinks that their building's worth a whole lot of money or their property is, and then they don't want to commit to anything long term because they're still hoping to develop it. It's a whole nother conversation whether or not you know they're actually going to develop their building and break you know take it down and build condos in the next five years. That's one. Another is just that it's such a brand new idea that people that haven't been exposed to a lot of green roof 
stuff that's going on around the country. They're like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, what, what do you want to do? <laughs> yeah, really, Patrick. What are you going to say when some hippie comes over to your house and says, hey, I want to put a bunch of topsoil on your roof. <laughs> Who is and, like, dude? and like start yeah. farming tomatoes, you know, up on your roof. And it's going to be good for you. Like the uh, roof's going to collapse. We're going to get sued. You know, that's the, all these things. Because landlords, they, they see their buildings, especially landlords that own huge buildings, they see them as ATM machines. You know, that, I mean, it's a generalization, but it's for the most part true. That's, you know, it just comes down to the, the dollar. And, and we can't offer a huge amount of rent, but we can't offer rent. And it's a brand new revenue stream, um, you know, from the roof. So it's something that they've never been making money off of. I would think it adds value. I mean, if I you too. had a big uh, house, like people would want to move into that th- place because they might get free fruits and vegetables or something. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And I can promise that the people that lived near the, the farm last summer really enjoyed it and they'd come up. Well, is there a working model that people can can check out and say and say, "Wow, this is like unbelievable!" Like here at Roberta's, we're seeing the, you know the rooftop garden here. You know, it works. It's well, nice. It beautifies the place. Gives everything a vibe. Is there something on a larger scale that's working right now in Brooklyn? Yeah, the the project that I that I co-founded last summer, rooftop farms up in Greenpoint. That's a it's a beautiful working model. It's Six thousand square feet. We're scaling it up to create a business case around it. But the simplicity is amazing. You know, there's no, there's really nothing to it. It's just a green roof membrane and a bunch of soil. So that's really what we have to set. We have to get the landlords up there to see it, to touch it, and say, "Wow, this is extremely simple." And I think it's, I think it's going to happen. The like the tide's going to just continue to to change. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, it's not easy being, you know, it's not easy being something. green. It's not easy <laughs> trying, to, trying to start greenness. So what, what are we growing up there? Uh, we're growing a little of everything. We have. Um, there's about 1,300 tomato plants started up above us, actually, that are all going to be feeding into the Brooklyn Grange. There's kale, there's chard, there's tons of different herbs. Um, a couple fun things we're going to do this summer. Um, I got a new variety of puntarella with a really big bulb on the bottom. Uh, we got some treviso, some um, purple tomatillos, some purple okra. Uh, those are all going to be you know, in smaller batches, but some, some fun things, some Thai chilies. Peppers do great on roofs because mm-hmm. it's so hot. Let's do tomatoes. So what's your money crop? I mean, and also I was going to ask, like, so you're going to raise all these things. How do you assure that you're able to sell all the diverse things that come out? Like, uh-huh. what if people don't want 200 pounds of Punterelle or something? Well, then we give them 20 pounds, and then we give 180 <laughs> to somebody else. Um, well, based, based on last year, uh, by the middle of the summer, I was, just, I was getting phone calls, emails from chefs and people around the city, and we, everything was sold out. demand far exceeded the supply so that gives us a lot of confidence and um you know a lot of restaurants have expressed interest people really want to support this i think in in terms of how we're talking about the landlords being a little bit slower to endorse it the restaurants and the people especially the artist communities are really fast to embrace it they think it's great and um and they also feel the quality of the vegetables and that's really what has to speak for itself and um, so how are you raising money? I mean, does the city, doesn't it see that this is, uh, I mean, you got people like Dixon Despamier talking about vertical farming and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like, um, who is receptive to this? Well, the city's been very receptive, but they're not going to give us any cash. They can support it. And in classic government form, you know, they're not going to put their, they're not going to step out and like try to create something, make something happen that's so brand new not until you get it working at which point they'll co-opt it <laughs> and then they'll take credit for it yeah exactly no but the city offers a tax credit which is extremely valuable in our negotiations with the landlords uh forty dollars and fifty cents a foot up to a hundred thousand dollars for one summer or one year and we're promising that it just goes straight to the landlord so that is actually something that that's a lot big, of dough you know yeah that's that's pretty big and a tax credit 
Um, so we, that counts towards rent. I mean, that's pure money that that landlord is saving, right? Yeah, we're not going to deduct it out of our rent, but exactly, yeah, that's it's equivalent of rent. Um, we've met with we've met with a lot of different people in the city, the DEP, um, Christine Quinn's office, mm-hmm. Parks Commission. Everybody's very supportive, but again, you know, it's it's for the most part just support. Um, and then, so to answer the other part of your question, how are we raising money? Um, we're kind of all over the board. We've been talking to some higher level venture capitalists. We have a, a pretty pretty tight business plan showing exactly where all the revenues come from, where they go, expansion models. Um, we've been taking donations. We'll take, as Patrick mentioned, we'll take we'll take anything. There's yeah. a button Matt, on have our we gotten any Collins? No, just kidding. But what is the uh, no. <laughs> but what is the uh, what is the website? By the way, let's just get that out there. It's so. www.brooklyngrangefarm.com. Because it's a farm. It's not a garden. People's, it's a farm. It's what, a commercial what, operation. What I'd like to see is I'd like to see cattle grazing up there. Cattle. Yeah, we got about, right? we got so about you one start, cattle. You got to start supplying rub with some, you know, oh, with some, some lamb shoulders, some pork bellies. Exactly. You know, Heritage Farm, Heritage Foods needs to get involved in this because I want to go up to that roof and I want to, I want to see, you know, I want to, I want to see like <laughs> like a rooftop ranch. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that, that's all in all the brainstorms for the future. Uh, the the amount of space that a, a single head of cattle takes is typically one at least one or two acres. So oh, our, our biggest eighty thousand square roof that we're looking at, that would have one cow. One <laughs> cow you can plant all your over. <laughs> no, no, that's not. No, by whose rules is this? This is by yeah, I, good, I don't clean, know. I'm not the rules, on that. Not, uh, you can pack them in, right? Not, 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 not Colonel Sanders' rules. <laughs> yeah, no. <They laughs> two cows. I, I think they could. That could probably handle two. Two cows, at eighty thousand square. Well, let's think put a couple goats. bells on them. Goats. That's the, yeah. Uh, goats. Oh, yeah, Although they eat everything, goats are dangerous to your. In one night, they could eat your whole. And they're in league with Satan, so it, there's that. It, yeah, <laughs> they're always part. Satan's always tasty. portrayed as a. We'll goat. dehorn them. It's always then, that thing. Very tricky. Those goats. The, yeah, it would have to be a separate from the growing operation. It would just simply be an animal. You know, goats, cows, whatever. <laughs> Is that a next step for you? I mean, ten years from now, to we're get thinking about meats? it. Like a giant habit trail with cows. I, I think the natural like, next step is well. We already are doing bees, but the natural next step would be chickens. Yeah, it would say this bee thing. Rabbit. There's been some news about this lately that uh, the laws just changed about beekeeping in New York City. Yeah, right? beekeeping's legal now. It's really it's, it's no fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so are you, you are keeping bees? Uh, yeah, I know there's been a lot of talk about that. Bees are pretty. So they returned it. Yeah. Wow, that's huge. Two weeks ago, yeah, it was. Um, it was. It was big news. Wow, that's amazing. That's good. You got to go to the beekeeping business, uh, Patrick. Yeah, no, that's, Heritage uh, needs to get some Heritage honey, Heritage uh, mead, which is uh, honey you can drink and get drunk from, Viking that, style. That's <laughs> actually another idea. Also, again, obviously down the road, but if we're on a roof that can't handle very deep soil, we could put down just a few inches, grow clover, wildflowers, put up like 20, 30 bee boxes, and then you can actually have like, you can sort of flavor the, flavor the honey mm-hmm. with it too. Wow, that's amazing. So uh, tell us, uh, I'm really interested in the step-by-step of uh, getting a garden. Like, So once you convince the landlord, once you get a structural engineer to prove that the mm-hmm. thing, I mean, give us like if there was 10, 15, 3, whatever steps towards sure. getting this done from bringing the soil up to everything. All right. Um, well, you get you you source your soil, and like we were talking about briefly before, it has to have a little bit of a mixture in it, uh, a little engineering to make it a little more lightweight, porous, so it drains and also breathes. And then you ship the soil down. We're going to get about 30 full dump trucks, 30 30 yard 
um, dump trucks. They're just, so we're going to have to close off the street for a day. They're just going to dump soil all over the street. So you have to get like a street permit? Yeah, there will be a street permit involved. Oh. And probably taking some pizzas to the cop shop the week before to make sure they're cool <laughs> with everything. That's right. And um, and then uh, we, we found this machine. The cheapest way that I can figure out how to do it at this point is uh, with a machine called the Pootsmeister. There's about f- just a half dozen or so of them in the, in the whole country. And it was originally, it's a telebelt made for concrete pumping to get concrete up high. And it has like a pump system and then a, a massive conveyor and then it telescopes out over 150 feet over the roof. So it, so it slowly dumps it. And, um, and then there will be a guy down at the, at the ground level driving as, as big of a bobcat front loader as we can get, loading the soil basically 24-7, well, nonstop while it's operating, into the hopper, just loading it up and then shooting it up. Now, that's a little bit more of a complicated way to put the soil up, but it's cheaper. Um, simpler is to get in these big sacks. They're 1.6 cubic yards. And in that case, we'd have probably about 500 sacks. And they'd come down in big um, flat rigs, load it on pallets, unload them onto the street, and then one by one lift them up with the crane and then dump them onto the roof. This is one hard-working hippie, Patrick. God. <laughs> yeah. That is impressive. That's very serious. And then this below is... that, there's a green roof membrane with a drainage system and a roof. That's got to be a whole other thing entirely, a drainage system. This yeah. isn't like growing weed in your closet, Patrick. God. I was like, I was hoping I could glean some uh, information, but this sounds like a loading jack and all that. You can't that. use a Pootsmeister in yeah. your closet. Pootsmeister. <laughs> I just like to drive the bobcat around. I have the black thumb of death. I'm, Are you I'm, volunteering I'm, to drive? Sure, I could. I could drive, but I do have the black thumb of death. You really don't want me anywhere near your farm. <laughs> so you're actually shooting soil in, and then organizing it. Yeah, to be shooting it and then dropping it out of a conveyor belt. And the conveyor belt has some ability to organize it, which is huge because we're talking about a million pounds. It's a lot of a million dude, pounds. It's a lot of dudes with wheelbarrows trying to keep that organized up top. So the the more organized the machine can put it down in our bed layout, the better it is for the long run. How important is the soil that you pick? I mean, do you need to make sure it's from upstate New York, or it could just be anything, or can it be? You know, from some company that produces soil? Yeah, there's a, there's a ton of different options out there. There's green roof companies that have engineered soil, which typically costs a little bit more. Might be a little, might be fractionally lighter. Um, but yeah, it's crucial. I mean, we, we need to start out with good quality um, composting and tons of organic matter and a, and a balanced system. Now, this this area here was all farmland once upon a time. Yeah. Right? In the in 18th century, this was all farms. Ironic. Dutch farmers. Mm-hmm. Bringing it back to, what, do we know what the indigenous... Uh, Plants that grew here were back in the day. What did people farm when the you know, Dutch you know ran this island? What did um, the Dutch eat? <laughs> That's a great. A lot of potatoes. <laughs> Are you Dutch? No, only about not not very much. No, twenty five percent. I don't know anything about it. But uh, Dutch. What did they eat? Dad, short growing season, <laughs> so they must have eaten things that grow in like July and August or something. Well, we're talking about the Dutch once they came here, the Dutch settlers. <laughs> it's a little different than. But the they probably brought their food. Grew, grew in the sure. Netherlands, but the, um, but yeah, this was all this was all all farmland. I think there were a lot of potatoes, and I think there were actually there were like cornfields out here, weren't yeah, there? I'm sure in, there in, were. In, in, in what's in New York City? Well, I know corn grows great upstate. I can't imagine it's too much different here. I think probably a lot of hardy crops, grains, some brassicas, which are kales, cauliflowers, broccolis, mm-hmm. sure lettuces. What about legumes, like naturally occurring plants and stuff? Those, are, they say, are the strongest, right? Because they nourish the soil more. I mean, are you sure? Do you tackle those? 
Oh yeah, definitely. Legumes grow pretty well on the roof too because they can handle some heat and they, for the most part, grow without a lot of maintenance either. Um, so it's a good like crop. To, once you pull something out, if it's July and you're kind of wondering what you do, it's like quick and easy to put put a bunch of beans in. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they also have a nitrogen replenishment property. Um, so uh, some nodes, it's bacteria and fungus that grow on the roots that actually they they pull nitrogen out of the air. And then if you leave the roots in or if you till them in. Um, after you're done with the crop, then that has a positive net impact on the soil for hmm. nitrogen. Just God knows what he's talking about. Right? Like, he's like, when you're ready for your rooftop garden. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, tell, tell us yeah, that. So the soil's around. up, and then what? You put these little seeds that you've been growing up here, and you yeah. insert them there once they're big enough? Uh-huh. So there's, um, there's certain plants that you need to get started in Feb, March, April, ahead of the season, because you need to give them a little extension, like particularly the nightshades, which are tomatoes, eggplants, peppers. Um, and it's good to start Why anything. do they call those nightshades? Um, somebody named them a nightshade. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, and, um, yeah, potatoes are in that family. Tobacco is. It's a, it's a pretty encompassing group. Um, so we get those started earlier, and, you know, you can see them upstairs. If we go up afterwards, they're about an inch, inch and a half tall. They're starting to get their second leaves. They're looking good. And they need a warmer climate to germinate in, so it would be impossible to throw those outside in our climate. Hmm. Um, we're also starting chicories, lettuces, kale, chard. That's just to get a boost on the season. What's going to produce the most for you, and what, what do you produce the least, but that you still do it because, you know, you just love it? Uh, well, the fun stuff. I'll, I guess I'll start with the least, like the ground cherries. We're going to have about 40 plants of ground cherries. They're so great. They don't produce very much like per plant, so it's it's a little rough from an economic point of view, but we can't totally nix the fun stuff, you know. The purple okra, I'm not sure how much of that we're going to get, but that'll be fun to grow. <laughs> and then like cauliflower and stuff, are very they, they, they require a lot of space, right? Yeah. They, high maintenance. Exactly. They require typically about 18 inches space um, laterally between each plant. And they also sit in the ground for a long time. They hold the real estate. Um, and then you, you, know, you pick it and there's one, you know, one big head of cauliflower. Um, so we're, so we're, we're growing some of that though definitely some Romanesco particularly will be the cauliflower well now maybe we can bridge I want to ask you one, one last question um, before asking Scott something but so it's expense is this cheaper than farmers market food I mean how does it compare to Pathmark I mean where because it, it seems like you don't have to ship it very far but then at the same time you're carrying soil up five stories or something sure so well, I think what we really have to do is get it going. We need to, a little bit of scale, a couple sites, a couple big sites. Um, and yes, it costs a lot of money to put the soil up on the roof, and it takes several years to pay that back. Um, but once it's up there, once you're taking care of it, you have an ecosystem going, you have neighbors bringing by their compost, um, you know, you have a circular thing going, you have all this energy that's right here in the city, um, then you're eliminating a lot of transportation costs. So... Um, you know, we're going to have to see how this evolves, but there's definitely costs that are not there that would be at, at other farms. So now cost is the thing. Like, does barbecue use all these things? Like, <clears throat> as you say, cost is an issue, but also just pure clash of ingredients. Like, yeah, does a pulled pork sandwich benefit from nasturtium or something? I, well, I'm totally. Totally. About that exactly, but, uh, well, possibly. I've never tried it, but... Uh, awesome question. It's... it's uh, <laughs> It, it's tough just because of the uh, the cuisine, really. I mean, it's not expected to have... Uh, I mean, I've tried to do some more, I would say, fancier things or something. You know, using fresher ingredients, this and that. 
And it really, I found that the people don't come there for that. They want the, you know, the, the, the collard greens that have been, you know, simmered on the stove and the coleslaw, potato salad, french fry, you know, the, the regular sides. And it's just, it's a really tough, uh, I, I've tried as much as I could, but it, it's, it's really tough to mix the two. I, I really wish I could. But. No Nouveau barbecue. No, no Nouveau bar- Although he is pushing the envelope. I mean, uh, Michael Pollan said, how come no barbecue, I can't find a barbecue guy in this country that wins or competes using all sustainable products. Um, but, you know, Scott, you're one of the few people that, uh, or, you know, there are probably others, but that would invest uh, $2 more a pound in belly because you oh, believe yeah. in it. Oh, it's a fan. I mean, that's, I wouldn't make the bacon unless I was using it with that fantastic pork belly that I get from me, that, uh, the Berkshire pork bellies. It's, they make the most amazing bacon. I mean, that's pretty much what really, you know, makes it so great is that you're know, starting with a great product. And then not adding a lot to it. I mean, I'm only adding little little sugar and salt and some pepper. Because you can obviously afford to do that because of the price that you command. But what about mm-hmm. um, in the rest of the country? Is it just price or is there a certain fat content that doesn't exist in a sustainably raised pig or something? Yeah, I mean, it's I from what I've seen of them, they, they look just as good as the, uh, you know, the, the, or better than the, 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 the normal commodity hogs. I mean, there's a, actually there's a guy that just started doing pork up where in my hometown i just read about it in uh i think it was on the internet or something like that but i had never even heard about it but this guy's doing uh sustainable uh pigs he's, he's raising them uh i believe free range mm-hmm. and he's doing this fantastic pork bellies he's making his own bacon um doing sausages making some it's some beautifully fatty meat it's uh i was really impressed it was they're really nice looking <laughs> Well, very interesting. Now, when you hear about vertical farming or, you know, rooftop farming, does it make you feel like that's going to cut off farmers in your neck of the woods no. where you grew up? Uh, no, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think it'll it'll really do a lot to show. The, I mean, that's one of the things I think that's, that's lacking here is in the produce. I mean, that's something that's really, uh, I mean, you, I go to the farmer's market and it's like, this is, you know, it's not, it's better than what's in the grocery store. But, I mean, it's a lot, a heck of a lot better upstate. And then I realized that all the really good stuff is getting used up there and what we're getting down here is not necessarily like as good as what it could be and i think by growing the the produce here and the herbs here and and everything it'll make it much better i mean we'll we'll, we'll see a much better a higher quality uh, produce here in new york well fantastic so uh, well let's give that number out again um now what's that number again seven one eight now what would people get if they uh donated five hundred or a thousand dollars to this uh garden uh well the number is seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight and they'll get a hearty congratulations from me personally wow Nat, that is very big of you thank you what else would they get uh, would they get like uh the tours of the farm and stuff like that definitely they'd always be welcome <laughs> up um uh, they could we could get them some nice gift baskets, some vegetables, a couple times a year. Because there's nothing more hardcore than supporting like this. I mean, com- community supported agriculture is to put money up for a farm. This is great. I think this really, though, in the long run, is going to benefits the community more than any grand, uh, you know, amazing amount of production that's going to come out of Bushwick, you know, you know, produce. But for the community, and as an example, I think it's you know fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's going to challenge a large commercial farm. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But that's not its goal, right? How? Where is all your food going to go? I mean, is it mostly to people, or is it to restaurants? Or yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put an emphasis on selling directly to the to the people, to the neighbors, and the community. We're gonna have a farm stand twice a week, Um, and then also there will be a lot going to the restaurants. 
Like um, Roberta's? Yeah, Roberto's will be buying vegetables from us. Um, what do they want? Fe- uh, they like they like the bitter greens. They they used a lot of the punctarella last year. The um, Romanesco. Um, they liked the tomatoes last year as well. The heirloom mixes. Although uh, I must say, Gwen's gonna have a, a ton of tomatoes growing right here. Oh yeah, on her own in the backyard. Gwen um, is in charge of the Roberta's uh, farm. Yeah, she's in charge of the the backyard and the farm over here. The kale was fantastic last year. There was a kale salad that came. Yeah, came kale and early bib. in the season. Yeah. When yeah. I think Roberta's, I think kale and bib. Well, that's because sure. that's because it's your only perquisite of doing the show is getting a free bib salad. <laughs> no, you yeah, also get I got a my free margarita. <laughs> you get a free margarita pizza. This is coming from Mike, who's always like, "I like my eggs over easy with some uh, nasturtium I'm a, I'm a, base." I'm, I'm a pizza whore. Yeah, so I do this show. Oh wow! <laughs> there's, not, there's not much I wouldn't do for a pizza. Look who we have here. We have uh, Ann Saxelby's business partner. Uh, Benoit, who um, he's a, a Frenchman who is uh, here with his son Thibaut and his wife just won the documentary for best uh, best documentary at the San Francisco Film Festival wow. for a documentary on I think Chinese adoption. So very very cool. They're there. That means Anne has uh, and here, and here's, a guest. And here's, and here's, and here's wearing her And here's hat. Jason Boog, sort of wandering around, looking lost. The guy who edits uh, the Galley Cat blog, publishing genius, and he's completely lost here. So uh, for people <laughs> who don't know, we are looking out of a window that was carved up by the very partners that Ben is going to be launching this farm with. Um, and we're in two shipping containers at Roberta's at two sixty one Moore Street. Well, this is uh, this is interesting. It's funny. It's so cutting edge. I'm almost having difficulty coming up with questions because, again, there is no model for this. They so. laughed at the Wright brothers, Patrick. They laughed they, at the they Wright laughed brothers. at Thomas Edison. You know, moving pictures, a machine that records your voice and then plays it back. Ha! But a machine that flies, please. Exactly. But there's no doubt that this is for real because it makes total sense. I mean, A, there's a food <clears throat> safety component where, you know, if there was a dirty bomb one day, we'd be looking from within the city to feed ourselves. Boy, that is one cynical way. It, it is scary how much food goes through Hunts Point. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you know yeah, how easy it would be? the biggest stockpiles of food in the whole world. I mean, I don't want to give ideas to anybody, but I'm sure they had it themselves. To the Al-Qaeda cell that's listening to the head yeah. of the Food Network. <laughs> if there's any <laughs> listeners out there, it's probably Al-Qaeda trying to see what the but, but kids hey man, are But hey, man, you know, it's to. all back to the garden. You know, I think, it's about, I think it's about time. And for people who don't even know this neighborhood, Bushwick, I mean, it is a wasteland out here of uh, a flat, large warehouses. I mean, it Boar's is, it head. is ideal for this. You know, I mean, this was the there's neighborhood a- that got burnt to the ground, in, you know, in the, uh, after the blackout in 77, hmm. you know, the ensuing riots. I mean, Bushwick has a bad reputation and... You know, as a natural outgrowth of of Williamsburg, you know, expanding and the whole city expanding, uh, Bushwick is the next, you know, spend sort of the next neighborhood to sort of become sort of trendy and hip, but it doesn't really support. Um, I mean, Bushwick isn't like a lot of brownstones. It's not, totally, not a there's, lot of residences here. You know, so it's very hundreds. supportive to artists and people with these sort of progressive ideas. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is this uh, the responsibility of those fringe neighborhoods to you know be cutting edge. You know, whether it be art or music or gardens. So. Are there any models you do look to? Like, is San Francisco ahead of the game, or not really? Really, really, the project that that we did last year was was pretty much first of the its leader. kind. Yeah, there was press from over, there was over eighty press inquiries in our email box from all over the world. Documentaries made, architects coming by. The sad Holy thing God. was that we didn't really have much work for the architects because there's nothing fancy about it. <laughs> yeah. So how the hell did <laughs> the you engineers. get into this? You well, just had a desire. Uh, 
fire um, in your butt to, to do this? Yeah, I was, I was starting to really become into agriculture starting about two years ago. And, um, and it started with an email I sent to Chris Good, who um, was put up the green roof last summer, became a partner at that. And um, we were both kind of just thinking similar similar things, similar lines of, he, he's a green roof specialist, and thinking what if we just simplified everything and started growing food. That's amazing. And before that, your family was in the, you'll love this, Mike, his family was in the uh, electronics of music business? Still are, yeah, my folks. Your folks? Yep. And Out where was that? Milwaukee, in? Wisconsin. Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yep. The electronics so, of music. Like they, but they didn't so, uh, do uh, very, very, uh, like, computer stuff. They would get into, I mean, they sold instruments for a while, right? Yeah, good memory, Patrick. My yeah, I was great, amazed by that. That's a my great... Uh, great, great grandpa moved to Milwaukee from New Orleans and opened up Flanner's Music House on Broadway downtown and sold phonographs and... I can't even remember everything they had in 1892, whatever he was selling. Mike, you would remember. Tell no, that was pre-phonograph. That was just <laughs> instruments, yeah, yeah. And then, then evolved through, always music-related, audio-video-related. Cool. Well, let's take a break, and then we'll come back for a, a, another segment just with this. And then after that segment, we're going to bring in your buddy, right? That's right. I'm going to talk to my pal uh, Jason from Gallicat. Talk about iPads. And the death of print. And the death of the print media. <laughs> Maybe oh it can God. be resurrected, just like Jesus was. <laughs>
from Nashville, Tennessee, your host, the Cherry Holmes family. All right, here we are back, man. This Roberta's—it's uh, so much more fun to do radio when everyone's out there like it, it's that. It's fantastic, and it's Easter Sunday, and here's a gentleman who just brought an Easter basket. And it's got a basketball. In it. Oh, we got a Polaroid too now. <laughs> oh, the Polaroid awesome. camera been replaced by the iPad. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about the death. That was, that was a lot of death theme going on here. But um, you know what Polaroid always said to me? Polaroid, because I, I've been a pornographer for so long. <laughs> Polaroids to me, you know, are, are sex and scandal. Now, of course, with you know digital photography, we don't need this. But Polaroids were a way to take you know really sorted pictures, you know, naked pictures, sex shots, and not have to send them to the you know your camera shop. Right. You know, I mean, the whole concept of driving <laughs> up to the you know to the photo mart, you know, you know, yeah. outside the shopping mall and dropping off your film—that's a dead concept. That's a dinosaur. Did you get uh, Polaroid but to be a sponsor Polaroids when you were at Hustler and all Polaroids that? Polaroids are so sleazy. You know, that's why I love them so much. When I was working um, for the porn racks, of course, we just get them in the mail all the time. You know, because we'd always have, like, the girl next door, the beaver hunt contests, you know, you know this, this sort of thing. Every magazine had one, and the stuff that would come in in Polaroids, unbelievable. Oh, my God. I'll tell you what. The, I was there when I was tell working us. for High Society. The day all the naked pictures of Chuck Berry came in, this guy brought them in. It was a stack of Polaroids. I don't know where he got them. Um, um, but it was you know, Chuck Berry with uh, you know, any any number of uh, white women, um, young, very young looking white women that he had you know taken in various motel rooms across the greater St. Louis area. What's his song? <laughs> um, that famous song, "Come Johnny, Come." <laughs> you got a sound effect there, Nat? Well, help me out here! Help me out here, please. Oh wait, that's jo- go but, Johnny, go. go oh, sorry, <laughs> my bad. Well. Um, we let's talk. Uh, I love uh, Mike. Mike's the best <laughs> improviser in the world. Wow, look at that kid with his um, basketball. So um, let's talk about secrets of barbecue. That yes. was a theme that came up during the break. Yes. Um, what are the? How did you? Um, you know. How did I get into it? Yeah. How do you get these secrets? I mean, uh, just it, trial and error. I mean, it's the biggest thing. I mean, you can read about them, and you know, the best way is just to do it. I mean, you got to really, literally spend hours and hours and hours smoking you know with your pit and mm-hmm. working with it cooking all kinds of meat learning what kind you know where the hot spots are you and every pit's different i mean you got it just takes a, a while to learn each one and then you once you learn the uh you see i like this trial and error that's the way way it should be it's yeah. not read it on the internet and you're an expert no. you, gotta, you gotta go out and try it you gotta you gotta have the nerve and you know the guts to fail at it a few times uh-huh. you totally. know until you get it right yeah uh, chris parakini was telling me uh, that a friend of his told him ten thousand hours 10,000 hours. If you do something for 10,000 hours, maybe you can talk about it or you can consider yourself well, there's, there's well the 10,000 hour concept of becoming a virtuoso, learning how to play a musical instrument or learning how to be a great painter. That 10,000 hours is what you need to put into that piano or the violin uh, you know, to, to really seriously get good at it. What, you got some ketchup on the bud? Yeah, it's, I don't know where, how that got to. <laughs> um, all right, we'll fix that. I'll take it. Thank you much. Um. So um. And then trial and error. So you just did it in your backyard in upstate New York? No, actually, I uh, I started at a roadside stand uh, with my partner. We opened up like a uh, 
we just a roadside barbecue and it, luckily i caught on pretty quick before uh, we made a bunch of people mad with bad barbecue um so i kind of learned pretty quickly and uh so it just kind of like trial and error cooking different things cooking ribs cooking briskets pork shoulders and just learning you know how how the you know <laughs> the way the fire should be and you know mm-hmm. how the meat should look while it's cooking i mean it's a whole you know and the biggest thing is patience i mean you can't keep opening up the doors and looking because every time you open up the doors and look all your heat escapes or the, the the whole environment that you've created in there is gone i mean all the humid the, the humidity that you wanted all that so you just got to basically have faith in it you know keep your fire the biggest thing is watching the fire i mean you can tell so much from the way the fire is burning about how the meat's cooking if you know how your pit cooks you know if you know what like if the fire is burning this way i know this the temperature is about here like mm-hmm. i mean when you've done it for a while you don't even have to look at i don't even look at the temperature gauges anymore i mean you can just kind of you know vibe just, it yeah exactly you know what you know what's happening in there just by the way the fire is burning and everything now i don't have a giant smoker in my backyard in fact i live in new york i don't even have a backyard but <laughs> if i were to actually um when i did when i first uh Moved back uh, to New York recently. I did. I went out to Sears and Roebuck and bought one of these giant suburban, you know, king of the neighborhood <laughs> gas grills. Mm-hmm. And um, I bought some hickory chips and some other stuff. And had the lava rocks, whatever. What's uh, what tips can you offer to the would be suburban barbecue? It doesn't have a real smoker. Oh, well, you know, who can really you know turn out some nice stuff? It's it's very it's it's actually fairly simple. I mean, you're only limited really by the size of the meat that you can use and the time that you're willing to spend. Um, if you want to do like a rack of ribs, you probably have to cut it down a little bit to be able to do it effectively in like in your home grill. Um, like a like a Thicken whole rack. <laughs> yeah, well, a whole rack's kind of tough because what you really want to do is you want to you want to separate your grill into two halves. Mm-hmm. You want a, ha- a hot side where you're basically burning the uh, fuel, or you have your your uh, wood chips on the the ele- or the gas burner for your gas grill, um, but. And then on the other side, you want to put the meat, and you want to have a temperature gauge in there, so that way you really can, because it it's a lot more uh, volatile. It, it'll go the temperature rise up a lot quicker and drop a lot faster in such a small environment. Uh, so you really want to you know keep an eye on the temperature. But if you as long as you keep it around you know 225 degrees right where your meat is, you want to you know that's where you want your temperature gauge. So that way you know. You know where the and at 225 uh, degrees. How long is it going to take to do that? Uh, those ribs. You could you could have them like four to six hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, depending on how you know, probably you know, depends on how how big they are, how much, how well you're holding the heat in there, and everything like Low that. Low and slow. Now I'm a, I'm your backyard, uh, you know, king king of the neighborhood, daddy with my my best, world's best dad apron on, and my can of Budweiser <laughs> in my hand, my silly chef's hat, and suppose I'm just cooking for the family. I don't have six hours. Can you recommend anything for you know your your burger flipping guy? What's out the Polaroid sort of, version of uh, barbecue? Sort of, well, you could do uh, you could take one of your pork shoulders and cut them down and uh, you know grill them a little bit faster, mm-hmm. cook them a little faster. The uh, the pork shoulder is fantastic. It really has a you know it'll put up with a lot of abuse. I guess is the best way to put it. You can cook it hot. You can cook it slow. And it'll still come out nice. I mean it's so it, it you can cook it a little faster. Uh, sausages are great. I mean I mean even you know. Grind your own, you know, stuff and make, you know, whatever you want. You're going to make some sausage. sausage grinder. Well, we could. I mean, um, well, let's see, Nat. Well, we should talk about other things also that go with it. You want to try to get Eric on? Is this I, a good I will, time? I will get Mr. Eric on right now. Mr. Eric on. Can I, I ask mean, one barbecue yeah. question real sure. quick? Uh, how about rabbit? You have a barbecue rabbit? Little lean. We broke some down this morning, actually. <laughs> Did you? For, you know, for Easter. It's a little bit better. It's better, it's better for grilling. It's uh, it's a fantastic meat, but it's a little lean to, to barbecue. You really want a high fat content so that the, you know, like the, the keeps the, 
a duck's pretty uh, uh, wild. Uh, not wild duck. Uh, domesticated duck. Wild ducks are very lean. It's uh, but while actually we do uh, domesticated duck at the uh, we do Pekin duck at the restaurant. We do. Yeah, that's a special, right? You don't fantastic. always have it. Yeah. No, we, cool. we have it every day. It's just a matter of if it's gotten sold, sold or not. Out. Yeah, so it's so we. That's the tough thing about barbecues. You got to really kind of plan ahead of what you're going to cook. I mean, you can't. Like if it gets busy, you can't say, "Oh, I'm gonna throw some more in," and, and that way we'll, you know, right. it'll, you know, you'll have more eight hours later. So it's not gonna do you much good. So. A lot of eighty sixes. Oh yeah, it's a lot of angry customers. But uh, and what cuts try. can you not use? I mean, just any lean cut makes bad barbecue. So Pretty much brisket, lean, good brisket, fantastic. Chuck roast uh, back leg of the cow, bad. No, it's not. Chuck roast no? isn't too bad. It's got some nice marbling in it. I've actually, uh, I've smoked some chucks before for. Uh, you know, no, nothing I've ever really done serious. Like, I think uh, for friends that wanted one, like, they had one and they wanted me to smoke it for them or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they come out fine. And, you know, they're just not the most ideal. I mean, brisket's definitely the most ideal uh, cut of beef, probably, or, other, or maybe the short rib. The well, we have, I'm um, talking about, you know, things that go with barbecue. Uh, we have one of the four most mushroom experts, uh, you know, uh, a real, real passionate guy, Eric Hoffner from the Orion Institute. Eric, you with us? Hey, yeah. How you doing there, Patrick? How's it going? Very well, sir. How are you? Cool. Well, tell us real briefly about uh, Orion, but then uh, tell us about mushrooms. Uh, well, Orion Magazine, as you know, and I, you've seen it before, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, bi-monthly about uh, all things related and debated and sustainability, really. But it's been going on for 28 years, and uh, it's, uh, it's great. We, we, uh, we have a lot of stuff in there about food and the economy and everything that really is of interest to the day, but it's got a real green lens to it, and that's really uh, kind of been our mark for a long time. But, uh, you know, we've had some great food stuff in here, too. And, in fact, I believe Michael Pollan said uh, local is the new organic in Orion first, which was, like, in 2003, I think, now. You guys said it first? uh, Michael Pollan said it first in Orion. Oh, in Orion. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, one pager, one, one point of view page. So... Pretty cool. interesting. Yeah. So now tell us about mushrooms. How did you get into mushrooms? We have uh, Ben, who's a, a great gardener. We have uh, Scott, who's a, a barbecue guy. Um, oh. So tell us how you got into mushrooms. And it's mushroom season now, Ben. Yeah, it's getting there. It's getting there. I want to talk to you about beef, too. All right. Fire that away. Works. Cool. Well, the mushroom thing started for me in, um, in California when I was working for, as an educator out there in the Redwoods. And you can't live there without kind of getting into what all these <laughs> profusion of mushrooms are. It's an amazing place for, for mushrooms. And Isn't all like, the state of Oregon underground is like one massive mushroom? <laughs> yeah, there's one that's like 30 square kilometers or miles. I forget what it is, but wow. it's, it's enormous, yeah. So you can just sort of go there and, uh, with a spoon? <laughs> <laughs> if you have a spoon, you're not going to starve. Yep, go, go start there a forest fire. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt. So you were an educator up in Redwoods. Yeah, yeah, and uh, some of the other naturalists and I, we were doing environmental education. We got out some mushroom books and started figuring out what we could eat and what we couldn't eat. And one of the things that's great there is chanterelles. You've seen them in the store. They're like, you know, nice, cute little things. But in California, they grow like uh, trumpets. I mean, like trumpet size. Enormous. And so amazingly delicious. Usually under oaks. So I got really into it, and after moving back east, I thought, well, 
you know, it's all the mushrooms here are much smaller, um, and the season is a little different. And uh, so I just got into growing them on logs, on oak logs, because I could kind of predict when I could have harvests, you know what I mean? Mm. And you have to keep it dank and dark, right? I mean, it has to be a wet, moist area, or can it be anywhere as long as you have the oak log? Uh, yeah, you know, it wants to be under trees, really. It doesn't want to be dank, because then it gets full of mold and other problems. Okay. So, yeah, it's pretty. It's, it's a very elegant but very simple process, and I teach classes every spring for people who just can't believe how easy it is and how cheap it is to grow your own shiitake mushrooms, mostly. At home, you can do it in the home in New York City too. If you have a little piece of backyard, yeah, they got to be outdoors to uh, fruit and to you know they like to freeze in the winter. They don't want to. They don't uh, you know they're they're a temperate climate organism. They want to be cold too. So, um, and you don't want, you don't want to have forty or fifty mushrooms fruiting in your house because then you start coughing a lot. You know the asthma problem. Now, does it have to be below a tree, or can you adapt to that? You can adapt to that. It just needs to be screen light. They just don't want to be in direct light. How about a rooftop full of mushroom logs? Yeah, as long as there's no direct sun. You know, the the problem is that they'll just dry out like uh, like any old uh, you know perennial plant will and die if they're in the direct sun without regular waterings. So I think you should be growing mushrooms up on that rooftop. Yeah, we're thinking about getting a log. See what happens. Yeah, get, why not? Get a log. <laughs> And uh, do they? Are there other plants that they grow well with? I mean, what are like mushrooms-friendly cousins? Or just well, you know, you can grow soil-loving mushrooms that are also culinary, and you can get the the spores for that and mix it into your raised beds. Hmm. And the mushrooms will help the the uh, the plants gather more water, and they'll take nutrients from the plants, and they'll make mushrooms right in amongst you know, your cauliflower or what have you. And it actually makes all, you know, it makes the plants stronger. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, then you get two harvests as well. And they grow well in the shade underneath, say, a cauliflower or a broccoli or what have you. So awesome. that's a great way to get involved in it, too. Now, mushrooms, uh, would they go well in barbecue? I mean, they seem to have that kind of oiliness that would stand up to a strong sauce. They are uh, quite good in barbecue, actually. Well, I mean, I've only really done portobellas, I think, um... I've cooked chanterelles, but I would never, I mean, it, there's just such a, I like, I just cook them in butter. I mean, they're so fantastic on their own. Yeah. And when you can get, especially when you can get them uh, forged fresh. But, uh, you know, some of the, I think, uh, as long as it's a little bit larger. It, How about those big some, hedgehogs? You those, slice them like a eggplant. Those, those could be fantastic. Those could be good. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the only thing I found with mushrooms, you got you actually have to add a little oil, spray a little oil on them. Mm-hmm. So that way that they hold yeah. the smoke. You need to. The, the smoke likes to stick to some some oil so it, or some kind of fat. I think it so. keeps them from getting crispy, too. Oh, definitely, yeah. It makes, it, makes them nice. Yeah, and if you're growing your own shiitakes, uh, these, you can let these things get as big as you want. And literally, I can grow them as big as portobellos. Oh, fantastic. So then you can put them on the grill for sure. Oh, those would be beautiful. And oh, man. With much better flavor. So, good. <laughs> so what what vegetables would go? I mean, fruits, vegetables, herbs with barbecue. I mean, what are the traditional ones that go with it, if any? Um, I mean, really, I mean, to cook as barbecue, there really traditionally there really isn't a lot of vegetables cooked as barbecue. Mostly, you know, it's pretty uh, big meat eating crowd. So yeah, the vegetables are normally relegated to the sides. I mean, I've I've done uh, I've I've wood roasted cauliflower, which is amazing. It, it really caramelizes nicely on the outside. 
Um, I've grilled all kinds of vegetables. I mean, grilling's grilling's much better for vegetables, really, mm-hmm. than uh, barbecue. It's a uh, kind of goes back to the lean, you know, the lean meat or lean type of thing. You want to, you know, anything with not a lot of fat, you want to really uh, stick to grilling, pretty much. Eric, talk to us about beef. Hey, all right. So I, uh, it's a question really for, for you guys because uh, your show is so great in terms of bringing green thought, sustainability, and food together. Well, we've got an article in the new issue of Orion, which I wanted to get your take on, and it's by Bill McKibben, that mm-hmm. guy who wrote the first climate mm-hmm. book and all that. Well, he's mm-hmm. got a great, he writes a column for us every other issue. Mm-hmm. And he's got an article, a new one, called The Only Way to Have a Cow. And in it, he talks about, um, you know, the travesty of factory beef and factory meat, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, lays out all of the kind of arguments that I think many of your listeners are aware of. You know, eating a half pound of ground beef is the same as driving an SUV for 10 miles. Um, the way we raise meat is responsible for almost 20% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. So he starts out by talking about that, and it's something, you know, that we probably all pretty much know. But, you know, he turns it from a a plea to stop eating factory-farmed meat to saying, well, what's the alternative? And he he, he talks about free-range, you know, free-range and and rotationally grazed meat as the way to go. Mm -hmm. You know, folks, we got to mimic nature. We got to do it the way it was done all those years ago with the bison and the elk. And, you know, they were free-ranging. We could still do this. And, uh, you know, and not only that, but the... You know, the way that the grasslands worked and the way a pasture can work is that they can sequester as much methane and CO2 as the cows can put down. And so it's just a great system, and it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, he lays out the argument, like, you know, if you're going to eat meat, please look for truly free-ranged, rotationally grazed, you know, meat. And, you know, meat, you know, you know, a food with a farmer's face on it so you can actually talk to the person and, and verify it's not just, you know, they can go out in the yard for an hour a day if they want sort of deal, which is what a lot of the free-range certification is. It's not truly moving the animals. So it's, uh, it's but, I mean, really can that feed the world? I mean, can you feed the world with that? I mean, uh, well, Ben was talking about his, his whole massive farm can only sustain one cow. You know? <laughs> Yeah, it depends. I mean, there are places that are better at growing grass than others. Like Argentina and stuff. Yeah. I mean, uh, exactly. Chile. So would you rather bring a beef in from Chile than eat uh, something here in the States? I mean, uh, do you think we need to ignore this buy local stuff when it comes well, to beef? You know, it's funny. I tell you what, in the Northeast here and where I am in, in Western Massachusetts, we're better at growing grass than we are at growing soy. So, it, you know, if you want to eat local, you got to eat soy from the Brazilian rainforest or, or chemicalized Iowa, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it just makes more sense to, to grow the glorious grass that we can here and raise beef on it. And we do have some amazing, I mean, I can buy the most amazing grass-fed beef in any of the local corner stores around here, convenience stores even. But does price become an issue? Well, you know, he... Uh, he says that would be a good thing, you know, the, all the labor that goes into moving people and, and the animals around with the, you know, the different fencing structures and all that would be good, you know. More labor, greater cost, uh, we end up eating 
meat more like an ingredient than as, you know, like a main course entree for every meal like we mm-hmm. sort of do now. Well, David Chang said that. I heard him speak at some Esquire event, and he's like, meat needs to cost more, period. Yeah. So that's um, where that's Bill comes pretty, down on Pretty it. understood. Yeah, I mean, it really can't uh, be... And that's even before, you know, the environmental costs. I mean, the only reason it costs cheap is because they're, like, you know, throwing all the crap in the river at the end of the, you know, Saturday. But Right. Anyway, well, this is. So, what, been you, what was your sense though about uh, grass-fed beef? You know, you're you're the gastronome, but you also have an environmental sensibility. But you know, do you think grass-fed is better? I and mean, we know it's better for you. I think chefs don't like it as much. They like grass-fed and corn-finished is as far as they'll go because there's just a certain leanness and it's not as consistently delicious. Mm. And you know, some of our my people, you know, who are bigger than us and therefore have to rely on, on, on supplies that aren't as pure, say, listen, it just tastes better, period. Mm. So why would we eat something that tastes less good? You know, Josh Ozersky is a, a big king of that. He has a, a show on this network. And, you know, he's not wrong. I mean, why would you tell him, you know, well, you should not eat something as delicious because it helps the environment? He's mm-hmm. like, I don't, cost is not an issue. So I think our chefs do that compromise. Grass-fed, corn-finished. Um, but grass-fed all the way, you know, um, you know, I would like chefs to try yeah. Argentinian huh? beef, like you say. Right. Um, because, but then again, that goes against the buy local. So it's a very complicated issue. But, uh, yeah, it is. But, uh, you know, and if you're, if you're going to use most of the animal for ground, then that's what you want anyway, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, give us the website of Orion Magazine. For OrionMagazine.org. All right. And, uh, yeah, definitely... Have a look at this article and weigh in. Leave a leave a comment if you have uh, strong thoughts about it. Well, fantastic. Well, thanks so much uh, for being on. You've been on before, and we hope to have you on again. Uh, bring some mushrooms, huh? Yeah, shall do. I have to admit, I am so immature. He's talking mushrooms, and you're asking who's their friend, and I'm thinking LSD. And you're talking. I'm I'm a total class act over here. You're talking about growing mushrooms, and all I can think of is those ads in the back of High Times about the spores for the magic mushrooms. You know, and you want advice on mushrooms, and I'm thinking like lots of beer and Black Sabbath. Well, I can tell you who was (laughs) doing drugs when when they were when they were doing art. Did you, Patrick? Did you see the artwork for this article? Um, not yet. And I I um, I sent it to you, but. it's it's the it's a map of the Americas, North America and South America. Oh, and it's laid out in in uh, like uh, sirloin. Oh, or, or that's cool. And it's perfect. I mean, it's it's to the letter. It's the map of the Americas, but it's in beef. Oh, I like Love it. it. It's awesome. There's a huge rib, like right where Brazil is. <laughs> oh, awesome. It's Man. a good point. We are disconnected from our brethren down south, and yet we're the same time zone and everything, and yeah. yet we couldn't be further removed from Brazil, and yet we feel more connected to, you know, France or something, which really has very little to do with us. Well, thanks for being on. We are going to uh, have Steve Pope on to do his... Uh, he's kind of an independent, so we can officially take a break or we could stay. And then I'm hoping everyone can stay because we have uh, uh, Mike's best. We have Jay Jason from uh, Get the Galley Cat blog. He's the publishing editor of MediaBistro.com. And uh, we have a lot to say today. I think about the iPad for- and creating content and uh, Easter and opening day. 
Thanks for <laughs> sticking with the food theme, Mike, with Bistro. That's uh, really cool. Uh, it, it's, you know, you know, from food to drugs, it's so easy. It's so easy. Yeah, it's so I easy. admire how contained you are. Sex you too. have kept uh, on the topic. Uh, you know, you'd see a Polaroid and you'd go off for a second. But I'm you know, sitting in KDC today, Pat. I know, so I know. Usually I, you're the you know, color commentator. I feel more responsibility co-hosting today. By the way, Butler played a great game yesterday. Congratulations to Butler for beating the Michigan State powerhouse. Uh, talk about underdog story. Um, anyway, well, congratulations to them. We're sponsored by TechServe. And um, Nat, do you want to try to just get Steve on while we're here and we'll bridge him in to get, talk about heritage poultry? I will get Steve on right now. Heritage poultry, you know, people forget that genetic diversity is really important. When you put all your eggs in one basket, you know, you don't really... Um, it doesn't taste as good, and then there's actually a food safety issue, again, to stay pessimistic. So, you know, keeping these genetics alive, and Steve is the heritage chef, because he says a lot of, uh, do you have trouble cooking certain meats? Like, if you get some old breed of chicken, does it end up being, you have to treat it differently? Uh, I've, not really. I mean, it, they, they, they do quite nicely, the low, slow cooking time. I mean, they... I've cooked a couple of older chickens, and you know that are, that are a little bit bigger, and they come out fantastic. I think they come, you know, they do a, you know, they come out nice with the smoke. Steve, are you with us? I am. Oh, awesome! So you're sitting in Frank Reese's house uh, doing Heritage Radio. Uh, it, it seems that that is so. How is Frank today? Oh, he is just doing fine. He's out uh, hatching a bunch of eggs. Well, he's not hatching them himself, but they are coming out of the hatchery, about 2,000 of them. So wow. it's an ongoing process here. What are you going to be talking to us about today? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm talk a little bit about, the uh, uh, because of the season, a little bit about some of the history and the relevancy of the egg and the, uh, of the chicken and of egg. And then I'm also talking a little bit about... Uh, the nutrition and the uh, the healing powers of uh, of chicken. Fantastic! We can't wait. So uh, take it over, Steve. It's is a great weekly segment, and uh, you know we're so happy to have you on the main course each Sunday. Well, thank you for having me. All right, take it, Steve. It is now mine. Gee, Easter is today, and uh, it's a time of the year that we always reflect upon spring and the rebirth of, of uh, so many things and. A lot of people don't really think about the the history that comes with the chicken and relevancy to seasons and to to the uh, bringing forth of, of rebirth and things of this nature. And it's sort of interesting if you uh, happen to follow the Judeo Christianic processes, you would discover that the chicken has had a place even in the Bible. And one of the things that uh, is interesting that around this time Christ said to Peter that before the uh, the rooster would crow three times. He would deny him. So even a time frame was placed by that chicken on how much time it uh, would take place before he would be denied. There's a lot of interesting things of looking at, at the Easter eggs and the Easter hunt and things of this nature. And that comes from a fertil uh, fertility rituals that were practiced 
many, many, many years ago, and it has to do with the rite of spring. And again, it has to do with the process of, of rebirth itself, the, the provision of, of uh, promise of new life coming. And interestingly enough with that, we have Easter eggs, and it does have a very strong religious or spiritual value to it, and that has to do with uh, how they would decorate the eggs. Uh, today, of course, we're decorating eggs in, in, a, in a different manner than they would have originally. Uh, originally, they were related to as uh, religious icons. They would they would put spiritual items uh, written on the egg and uh, to identify them as as part of that Easter egg, and they would send out for the for the hunt for the kids to uh, to get their treasures. But along with that would be the spiritual knowledge that came with it. It really is uh, interesting how that took hold all the way up to Fabergé creating the most beautiful uh, egg uh, designs that you would spend millions of dollars for with Fabergé's work. Very interesting process, very interesting. And at the very end, uh, in looking at part of that spiritual, I uh, believe that it said also in the Bible that, that uh, Christ would return and as, as a mother hen gathering the chicks. And that's, again, uh, the protection that you see with the mother hen watching over her, her little babies that are out in the field. And I think, you know, when you tie that together a little bit with what the heritage chicken is all about, you have that same history. Our, uh, our chickens do run out there in the field, and they do uh, mate naturally, and they, they produce these eggs as they should be produced to be turned into, uh, into little chickens and little chicks. So it's, it's just an interesting, fascinating part of it for this time of the year uh, to kind of reflect upon how important that the chick has, uh, chicken has been other part of that is that, that the chicken has been a good traveler throughout time, and I think that that's another thing. Animals that are used for food uh, are easier to move if they're depending on their size, and one of them is that many of the, the farmers, many of the people moving west, would take and uh, take a flock of chickens with them, uh, and they would be able to perpetuate and raise out in the, the uh, open wilds of the west uh, they would be able to raise those chickens. A little more difficult would be raising cattle, things of this nature. But the mainstay of the chicken also was there to, to help nourish the family. And uh, from what uh, they say, it's the nutrition of that bird that kept people healthy. I know that looking at uh, uh, my mother, she would, uh, and my grandmother, and I think there's truth to this, she would, we would get sick with a cold. And one of those things is is that uh, when we were feeling really down, she would prepare a, a, a boiled chicken or a chicken soup, and that chicken soup would be very, very uh, helpful. And there was a couple of reasons why it was. Even though that the, the bird itself uh, has a lot of protein and nutrition in it, the broth and the heat of the, of the broth was very soothing to the system. Along with that is the, the, the schmaltz or the chicken fat that is with that bird, which is, again, uh, helpful in coating the throat, keeping it uh, uh, open, so to speak. The, also, the aroma of chicken itself acts, act, acted as an aromic for the, uh, for the breathing. You would actually be able to breathe better after uh, eating some of that soup. Now we at Good Shepherd believe that some of that's been lost in the in the re, re, uh, restructuring, if you will, or the re, redesigning of of the chicken of today. 
a lot of those things uh, do not happen nutritionally because the bird is being grown so fast in your commercial realm that uh, you're not able to get a lot of that type of nutrition. Others can debate that, but this is what we believe in the sense of natural growth creates what the bird is, is naturally meant to provide for us. So it's one of those things that we say, you know, if you're, if you're not doing well and you're, you're holistic in your health, a, a very big bowl of, of chicken soup, hot chicken soup, is going to be very, very nutritious for you and healthy. There are other aspects about the, the chicken that they are discovering, and this is, of course, uh, for conjecture, but I think it makes sense. One of the things that they used to do, and we advocate if you're going to make a soup, you boil that soup, uh, that chicken that you purchased, uh, and you boil it down, and then you are to debone it. And then I would, uh, what we do is, for, as far as our uh, chicken soup is, we literally take and debone the chicken, and we put the bones back in. But we break the larger bones once they're cooked. We break them to open the uh, bone structure up so that the chicken uh, has the marrow or the inside uh, processes that go with that bird. That, in the boiling vat of hot soup, that you're making can create a higher value of that soup and again more nutrition out of the out of what you're making then you simply remove the bones put your chicken back into the pot and add your other uh, elements to it uh, just another good way of of using the whole bird and making the bird uh, active for you uh, that's about what I have today, and uh, it's it's interesting to see what Easter has uh, has had in store for us. And each year, that promise that those little baby chicks will be born again. Thanks so much, Steve. We will talk to you next week for a post Easter update on mm-hmm. Heritage Poultry. Thank you very much. Main course. Easter Sunday. Opening day. 
Yankees versus Red Sox. And the iPad versus everyone. Oh, <laughs> oh man. So the iPad just uh, hit the street, um, I guess, yesterday. And here to talk about that with us, with Patrick and me, I'm Mike Edison, uh, is Jason Bogue from uh, MediaBistro.com. He's the uh, publishing editor of Media Bistro and is largely responsible for the Galley Cat blog. Mm-hmm. Good to see you here, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. It's uh, pretty cool to be here and uh, stare out this window at the amazing sunlight streaming a, down from the sky. This is quite a scene here at Roberta's, right? Yeah. Here in this uh, recycled um, shipping container, turned into a radio station. Old school. But uh, we're going to talk about 21st century technology today. The iPad. I feel like uh, <laughs> meet the press. iPad. The death of print. Discuss. <laughs> yeah. No, I was there yesterday, actually, at the uh, Fifth Avenue store and looking at the insane crowd of people. And it's just nuts how this Steve Jobs guy can actually get. He didn't pay anything for any of this publicity, but every single news network was out there. Every single cable news personality. Everybody had a truck out there, and they were all just standing there looking at these crazy Apple fans. Which all I can figure out this iPad thing is really just a big iphone um and why do i need this thing what can it do that yeah yeah it's not even an iphone it's an ipad touch frankly i love my iphone but the worst thing it does is phone (laughs) (laughs) it's it's the least you know um, attractive thing about about it is the phone people complain about the sound it sounds at the other end i get drop-offs all the time but damn I, i love having a computer in my pocket no the moral for all apple devices is don't buy the first generation i mean i i didn't buy one yesterday i went there checked it out and covered it for galley cat but i'm not gonna buy one till another generation at least just because the, they're not that great until they kind of get it right mm-hmm. so what did you report on galley cat and for uh all you kids listening that's mediabistro.com slash galley cat yeah or just galleycat.com or galleycat.com yeah. and it really is uh the best of its kind in terms of uh what's going on inside the publishing business no i love i love love your blog man it's cool it's it's a really cool site and i get to have a lot of fun on it but uh yeah yesterday i just went and uh, i just quizzed people in the line i was like what do you think about digital books and i asked them how much they thought a digital book should cost i had someone say 99 cents and i had someone say 50 to 100 dollars. so it was a crazy line well you know this is this is a crazy thing you know um content costs money and people think they should be able to read everything for free. And, you know, I'm, I'm an author. And, you know, and goddamn if I'm going to give someone my book for 99 cents. I mean, the public library is for that, frankly. It's free and it's great. But if you really want to own it, which I hope you could. I guess with this whole electronic book thing, it's like, do you really, what are you, what are you owning? A stream of electrons. There's no permanency <laughs> to this thing. You know, yeah. I get heat all the time from, um, you know, from, from girlfriends. You know, it's like, you know, you, should, you really ought to clean this place up. Like, when they come over my place because there are a pile of books everywhere. But these books are my friends. You know, and a stream of electrons, not so much. Absolutely, but you also, the guy that told me 99 cents, he was like, well, that's how much I pay for music. And he said, that's the model I like. That's what I like about Apple is they give me everything for 99 cents. And that's the unit that people are getting used to. And so I think uh, writers are going to be changing kind of the way they break their content up. I don't know. You can maybe consider a book, an album, and then a chapter, the, the kind of 99 cent song. Right, 99 cents is a song. That's interesting. You've been downloading a lot of songs uh, off the iTunes site, Patrick? I uh, know. I didn't even... I'm really bad with that stuff. <laughs> I mean, my phone now has this. Oh, this is good. And for those of you who can't wow. see, because um, you know, there's, there's no pictures on the radio. They can't see us, Patrick. It's a, basically a Campbell's can of tomato soup, I think that is, well, and some kite string. I did kind of want to <laughs> say to our listeners, like, when you open this phone, make sure you don't do it like this. Like what you just saw me do, don't do that. Because it um, it kind of grinds the bottom of the thing. Do it like this. Okay. Oh, okay. Everybody got everybody at home. Got that. So that was my little comic moment of our radio. <laughs> well, you know this technology thing, and um, you know our, our farmers and our, our barbecue folks here today. Um, once upon a time, 
I was in a recording studio, and it was at the advent of Pro Tools technology. And I was invited to go to this recording session with a fellow in my band. I went over and we watched the band play. And at some point along the line, the bass player made a mistake. He flubbed a note. And they were going to go in and punch it in, as we used to do on tape, analog tape, you know, which is great because you could see the magic. I mean, you see the tape rolling across the magnetic head. You sort of get a physical vibe of what's going on here. And it is physical. It's, it's, it's magnetic particles, and it's a big magnet, and basically it's all it is. Um, and the engineer said no, because this was the first digital session we'd ever seen. This is, you know, 10 years ago. I can fix that. He takes this light pen, and he corrects the note, which to us, watching this was shocking. He said, you've just made us obsolete. What we did doesn't matter. You don't need the musician anymore. And my friend was absolutely pissed off. He said, well, fuck you, man. You want to make a steak? You need fire. You want to make a pizza? You need an oven. You want to roast a chicken? You're going to need fire, and you can't change that. And he stormed out of the recording studio. Oh um, and, you know, making barbecue, obviously, no amount of technology is going to replace that. No, no it's, uh, that. that's for sure. I mean, that's, I, I think we have one of the most technologically advanced smokers in, that they have out there, and there's not much. There's still not much further along than, you know, it's just a convection oven with a firebox on it. I mean, <laughs> you really, there's not. It, it, I mean, and I, honestly, the best way is really just a, you know, just the simple fire and meat. You know, it's the having all. I think the more technology you have, the worse it is. And a crappy novel is still going to be a crappy novel, whether you're reading it on an iPad, a Kindle, or uh, opening up a book that you picked up at the dime store. It, it, it's, uh, is there a loss of uh, quality when you read uh, from a computer? Well, I, mean, I, I think there's going to be an ultimate gain in quality, but uh, right now I think, yeah, there's a loss. A gain uh, in quality, how so? Oh, okay. Um, how about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft? You guys, has anyone Love H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan. He, he wrote these kind of horror stories back in the 1920s about this looming horror that's at the edge of reality that comes and gets everybody. They're great books, and uh, they're all digital now. I, I only read H.P. Lovecraft on my iPhone or my Kindle and things like that now, but the other day I saw this great movie that was all made by H.P. Lovecraft fans that adapted one of his most famous novels and it was a super cool movie and there's no reason that that movie shouldn't be sold alongside or bundled with that digital book that I have on my phone Like, there's no reason I shouldn't have found that already just because I was reading his book I, I agree with this and I think there are open opportunities for multimedia um, and with my own work because you know, you know I'm a writer Absolutely. and I also do video and um, I, I record music and I do spoken word I would love for someone to read my book and be able to push a button and um, hear me do a little color commentary mm -hmm. or watch the video why not I mean I consider that added value absolutely and the iPad is kind of the first device that we have that really offers that to us the Kindle uh, going back to the quality thing, Kindle quality isn't that great yet, and it's a very simple device. You feel like you're reading on a Commodore 64, kind of. Mm -hmm. And uh, So now the iPad has full color. You can get video. But, you can get Wikipedia links. You can do all sorts of stuff. But, I mean, there's a lot to be said for, you know, blank, black ink on white paper, too. We're talking about the quality of the writing. And on my Kindle, uh, you know, the works of William Shakespeare are not necessarily going to be, you know, be any less than, the, you know, it would be on an iPad. Now, maybe you could throw in, you know, some... You know, bells and whistles to enhance the experience. But truly, to write a book, a book is a book is a book. And it can be written on the back of a shovel with a piece of coal, or it can be typed out, you know, in the old Remington upright, or I can write it on my laptop. Um, but we're talking about the content of writing. Is the quality of writing going to decrease because of this digital revolution? 
No, I, I think it's. I think it's. Uh, I think writing's going to get. I mean, it's it's not going to change. I, there's great writers everywhere, and I think now they have this kind of distribution platform that they never had before. Up until a couple weeks ago, you would have to go through a major publishing house to get the kind of uh, distribution that you can get with a digital book. You can put your own book on the iBook store. Well, now. this has been true for a while in music, anyway. Where I can say, okay, I've uploaded my record to MySpace. Um, I'm on the internet. I'm on iTunes. I now theoretically have the same distribution as Prince. Yeah, but up until up until I guess the Kindle too, but more the iBook store. Uh, up until then, if you wrote a digital book, no one was going to read it. They're not going to look on their laptop and see it. Now we have these great devices for reading them, and as these things kind of become more popular, I think people will be shopping more for these books. So That's you don't, you don't have a Kindle? You don't have a Kindle, Patrick? Uh, no, I mean, like I said, I barely have. I mean, just for my listeners, let me hold it up. This is what I have. <laughs> Um, it really is sad. Yeah, well, no, I mean, this technology, I mean, I think, um, you know, Ann told me, uh, you know, like, PowerPoint is uh, is a way of hiding, you know, and I think, you know, the very, Carlo Petrini used to say, you know, we created all this technology to serve mankind, but now we're being victimized by it, you know, and plus, I hate this idea of um, planned obsolescence, you know, where they're going to screw their most loyal customers because they haven't figured stuff out yet. Like, wait, then wait another six months, you know, get all the kinks out. I, I agree with that. And that I guess Apple is guilty of the planned obsolescence. Um, funny, I was just reading about that last night. And what it was referring to was the culture, the post-war culture in out of the 1950s when we sort of came moved from production to a consumer culture and planned obsolescence was sort of built in the business plan of every car manufacturer of every washing machine manufacturer I mean they were coming out with stuff they knew it was going to break down they knew they were going to improve it and it was just to benefit from uh, whatever you know, economic boom we experienced after the war. Of course, now the iPad's coming out in the middle of a great recession. Mm-hmm. Well, my pet theory about this whole thing, I don't think the iPad was ready to go. I think they saw that Kindle was getting millions of people buying it, mm-hmm. and they said, it's time to step in. Even though we're not completely ready to go, let's do it. And uh, So that's why I would urge everyone to wait at least six months to a year to buy one. I mean, now, what scripts are going to happen, for instance? like What are the types of things that go wrong well, when the, things the, go the wrong? The biggest thing is the new edition doesn't have uh, the 3G capability, so you can kind of just go online with the 3G with uh, your cellular network yeah. but the weird thing is they've already announced that, the, that they're doing another generation that does have 3G that's oh, available yeah. they've already told you up front oh the next one's going to have cellular capability absolutely and some like something like 300,000 people have pre-ordered this machine knowing that it's not ready yet well and, uh, you know there are up. all these Steve Jobs sycophants you know and Apple sycophants I was reading in, in uh, my preferred source of information the New York Post uh, <laughs> this morning um, about you know oh I, it's a new Apple gadget and I can't wait to get it and this young woman saying, I, you know, I'm going out, I'm going to buy my iPad, I can't wait to wait here all night, I can't wait to spend all day in bed playing with it. Okay, it's the most beautiful day of the year, and she's going to buy a new computer, which is absolutely redundant, because she has an iPhone, she has an iPod, she has an iBook, or whatever current laptop model she has, and she still needs to get this thing that really is, just sort of takes like some of the lesser components of all of them, and keep her out of the sunshine. <laughs> and this is mainly so you can read books? Oh, no, no. Uh, I, I think the, the majority of the people are buying it because you can actually use your Netflix account on it. You can uh, actually watch Netflix movies on this thing. You can uh, get your right, songs. Let's, let's, just, let's be honest here what this is all about. This is just a pornography delivery system. Okay? <laughs> That's what this is all about. Okay? Raise your hand if you've looked at pornography on your iPhone. You don't have one. But this is a good reason to get one. Okay? <laughs> the iPhone, this is all about delivering pornography. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can, now you can, you know, there's no 
longer a reason to read on the toilet, not when you have an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, and when it came to deciding the format wars for uh, DVD, beta, all those things, it gets decided by what the pornography buyers Absolutely. want to buy. And if you go back huh. to the beginning of this whole mess, like the, the CD-ROM market, exactly. it was only pornography. No one wanted was buying you know the Encyclopedia Britannica. They were buying <laughs> Debbie Does Dallas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's what it's that's always been about is, is um, whatever... I mean, pornography has always driven technology. The pay-per-view cable systems, they're at the forefront of that. And, you know, the famous story of the internet, the most you know lucrative or the most valuable uh, URL of all time is sex.com, which, you know, some brilliant person had, you know, signed up. Like, In 1983 you know, or yeah, something. Exactly. You know, right when Al Gore got done inventing it. <laughs> oh, no. And the most popular digital book online that's being um, pirated by people right now, the most popular one for the last year has been the Kama Sutra. There's a Kama Sutra oh. app on my iPhone. I noticed that I can get. From oh yeah, it. sure. Nice. So, um, is this well? Is that counted when they? What is the porn industry? It's like the biggest. It's like bigger than the NFL, Major League <laughs> Baseball combined. Like, what are some of those crazy stats? Uh, no, I don't have the stats at my fingertips, but but rest assured. I mean, what do they used to say? Like, one point eighty percent of of and eighty percent of Google searches were sex related. Absolutely. Oh my God! But they're enduring kind of a recession as well. I've heard, and uh, supposedly the amateurs are taking away from it, all it the has. professionals. It's, and it's you a know, big problem. personally, Patrick, tell me how you feel about this. I want my porn stars to look like porn stars. I want. I really. I don't want to look at someone you know getting it on in like you know you know some average looking girl getting it on in a bedroom. I already do that. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to look. I want to look. You know, at some. Unob- absolutely unobtainable goddess. That's yeah. what it's always been about. Her hair should be giant. Her eyeshadow should be blue. Her heels should not be made for walking on. Right, right, you know, right. this is a porn star to me. Fortunately, again, content uh, costs money. You know, bring it back. Good content costs money. You can go on to any number of porn sites and you can see all sorts of, you know, you know, get you goo. But to really see the high quality stuff, unless you know you're a little, one level beyond and a more sophisticated consumer, mm-hmm. you know, same thing with music too, where you can pretty much find anything on the internet and some you know BitTorrent site and download. You know, whether it's the works of Bruce Springsteen, I mean, real pirated stuff, not the stuff they want to give away for free. It's all out there. So tell but, me, does, is because of all this, print media is pornography killed print media? Boy, that's an interesting leap. But it's true. Like, uh, I, I'm a journalist. I've been working at this for a while. I've watched one of my places fold. I've watched other places shut down, close people out. And uh, it's true. Like, when you have someone that's willing to review a book on Amazon for free, most people are going to go to Amazon, look at that review, decide on the book that way. And so the book reviewers that used to be writing for the newspapers and things like that, they're out of work. They're struggling right now. And mm-hmm. so the same way that uh, porn stars are losing work because these amateurs want to shoot themselves having sex, I think uh, journalists are losing the same way. So in a way, I think you're right that uh, pornography has destroyed it, it, it has because, again, it's about the distribution system. Um, and it's true. When there are so many people, qualified or unqualified, who are willing to offer their opinions on any number of things, whether it's the latest production of Madame Butterfly or yeah. the latest you know, or, you know, Swedish Enema Nurses Volume 18 or the, the new you know, you know, Vampire Weekend record, it really makes people who are, who are qualified to discuss these things, puts them at the margins. Right. Really, uh, Swedish enema nurses, just great, great. What volume are we up to now? I don't know. It's, it's a great, great series, though. <laughs> and uh, so tell me, I mean, are, is this, uh, like, are schools going to go to this um, technology? Oh, I mean, Yeah, there's this school. Seton Hill University announced earlier this week that they are giving all incoming students a free iPad. 
So uh, I'm sure uh, there Seton are tuition Hall, that, accounts for that. Seton Hall's Rutgers, right? No, Seton Hill. Oh, and, uh, oh Seton Hill. This <laughs> is was like McDougal's restaurant. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's all Seton Hill. That's obviously you know some sort of scam. What about the University of Phoenix? Wait, the one they keep pitching me. You know, you know, I've dropped out from some of the best colleges on the East Coast. I don't, I don't have uh, that piece of paper. But the University of Phoenix thinks they can, they can hook me up. So uh, is there a, um, is it more environmentally sound to do read a book on Kindle than it is to be producing all these books? Yeah, I, th- I think I think there is something that's going to really help. I mean, there are publishers print way too many books in general. I mean, most books aren't bestsellers. Most books uh, end up getting pulped or sit in warehouses forever and uh, get sold at warehouse prices. It, it's a big problem. And so I think, yeah, for someone like a, a Stephen King caliber writer, someone that they used to print tons of copies for, and if they didn't sell, they'd be stuck with them. Those people, people are going to buy those disposable books on the Kindle, and they're going to read them on the Kindle, and it is going to be environmentally sound. Well, I think there's something to be said to that book, certain types of books and genre writers, um, and not to be a little, you know, Stephen King, you know, or the accomplishments of any any genre writer, but it's sort of like pop music. It's more disposable than what we would call pretentiously literature, um, where I might need it on, on my shelf and keep my reference copy available. I mean, there's certain things, the airport kind of, you know, bestseller kind of books, you know, that crud Dan Brown turns out. I don't, you know, it's, it's disposable. I want to listen to it once, I don't want to get rid of it, like a pop song. Yeah, mm-hmm. and with the Kindle, you don't get rid of it. It's just sitting there, and if you ever had to go back and be like, wow, i got to find that great line from Dan Brown, and I want to just check that out and tell my kid as some advice, you can go back and you can find it. It's not a big deal. But when the bombs go off, there's that big electromagnetic pulse, and the computers stop working, I'll still have my books. Do you think I'll, I'll be going back be to the a, yellow pages to look up a number for the phone that doesn't work. Do you think there'll ever be like a used Kindle business uh, <laughs> that sparks up? Uh, <laughs> that'd be funny. No, I, I don't. I think uh, the the Kindle books are so cheap already that uh, it's got the it's got the publishing industry in complete disarray. Right they don't now. they don't know what to do. And you know the thing is with this sort of distribution, it eliminates so many costs. There's no warehousing. There's no shipping. Mm-hmm. There's no printing. But there's still the guy who's got to sit down and write the book. And that person should be rewarded. For doing this, it's and not, he gets more rewarded with this new system. He gets rewarded the same, basically. Same. At the end of the day, if someone pays nine ninety nine, which is sort of the default price, more or less, um, for an electronic book, um, where you know the hardcover might cost twenty five dollars, I mean discounted on Amazon, of course, mm-hmm. and then the soft cover might cost fifteen dollars or maybe eleven dollars on Amazon. Ten bucks is the default you know price for uh, electronic book, a Kindle book. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, Apple, of course, always controls their own prices. You know, you can't discount an Apple product, which is mm-hmm. part of part of their business model. But um, you know, as a writer, if I sold a book for you know nine ninety nine as a Kindle, I still get a royalty rate on it. Um, so I'm still making money on it, allegedly. Yeah. Well, that that reminds me. I kind of want to mention our sponsor once more. I should read I, this twice. Read it again because I love tech, sir. They're the old uh, the old Mac. You know, talking about this. You know, they used to be alone in the city. That's where you would go for a Macintosh product. And, and they now, st- they still kind of rule. You know, I like going to tech serve and I like getting my ticket from the old like deli counter and buying machine. a Coke and, from that little machine. And everybody there is you know sort of very young and cool and hip and knows tons more than I ever will. Oh, God, I hope they're listening. Uh, TechServe is New York's premier authorized Apple reseller and service provider, serving individual customers, creative professionals, and Fortune 100 companies. TechServe has built a solid reputation on its expertise in technology, sales, and service. As a company that believes in honest and forthright business practices, TechServe is proud to sponsor HRN and the promotion of sustainable lifestyles. To support sustainability in New York, TechServe is holding an e-waste recycling drive Saturday. You can throw out can your you bring Kindles. Your, can you bring your Kindle once you yeah. get the iPad? <laughs> That's well, on April 10th. Are they, accept, 10 are they accepting non-Apple products? 
So can I can I bring my my Kindle? Yeah, which can. I'm renouncing now that I have an iPad. iPad. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's done. It, it lasted for a few years. Well, tell us what else is on your blog. What else? Uh, what other? Issues, stories. Uh, this week was actually really wacky because the Apple iStore is going to change pricing so much because Apple allows the publisher to say, I want this price. I don't want. And Kindle, the way it has worked up until now, is Amazon said, This is what we think the price should be for a digital book. Hmm. That was so, a revolution. Yeah. Hey, man, I, I was one of those authors whose book was not on Amazon.com for weeks because of, of that war. And all of a sudden, um, the book was not of it, not just the, print, uh, the electronic version. The print version was not available for four weeks. Yeah, Amazon's been just battling with these publishers, and they pulled the buy buttons off of these books to punish the publishers that wanted to take control. But ultimately, they said, okay, go ahead. You can do it. Funny thing is, though, is this weekend, Amazon started putting a disclaimer on all books that are sold by publishers where the prices are set by the publishers. It says, Amazon did not set this price. The publisher set this price. And it's put like prominently right below the price. Jeez. Well, I've always believed in a sliding scale for motion pictures, and this is an idea that's very unpopular in Hollywood for various reasons. What but, is that? Okay, well, it's real easy. Um, you know, if you came to see my band play, you'd probably, uh, you wouldn't even have a two-drink minimum. Just show up, I'd probably buy you drinks, okay? <laughs> but to see the Rolling Stones cost a couple hundred dollars, which may or may not be worth it, but you can see there's a little bit of a supply and a demand thing going on here, and there's the amount of money that went into the production. You two concert at the stadium costs more than to see me play at your local bar. So I think, you know, if you're going to go see the Titanic, Titanic, which is this massive movie, or Avatar, mm-hmm. um, okay, and it's $14 or $15, and it's in 3D and it's nine hours long and it costs a zillion dollars to make. All right, $15. If I'm going to go see a slasher movie that someone made in their backyard, maybe that should be $3.50. Mm-hmm. I'm going to the art house to see Humphrey Bogart uh, vehicle from 1950. Maybe it should be $5 or $6. Maybe because they don't do as much business, I got to support the business a little bit more. You know, you guys know how to set prices, but it should be a sliding scale. Why should everything be one size fits all? Why right. should Star Wars cost the same as. Um, you know, a, a slasher movie that costs like you know a hundredth to make, mm-hmm. um, and is really in terms of quality and demand is probably that much less as well. Well, look at the indie record industry right now. I think we're about to enter an indie publishing era with digital books, where you hmm. have all of these smaller labels That's publishing books by people like Mike, and and they customize it in their own way. And Mike at his shows sells his T-shirts or his whatever. But the, the experience of an author, I think, is going to change really drastically. And I think uh, I think this is a good thing in, in certain yeah. in some ways and for some people. Um, I mean, still the idea of a traditional author who writes and puts out books. Not every every author um, is, is equipped to supply bells and whistles. Not every topic accepts that. Um, but certainly, um, you know, one of you know, the problems I had with uh, my big time, you know, huge New York City publisher is when I said, hey, we're facing this digital revolution and I'm talking to a guy who makes these apps for the um, iPhone and get ready for this next wave. The Kindle doesn't support MP3s or video yet, which is a problem with it, but let's get our electronic version together. Uh, given the topics that I write about, sex and drugs and rock mm-hmm. and roll, and my experiences in the gutters of, of, of <laughs> those topics, I had lots of stuff. And their answer, though, was if we do it for you, we have to do it for everyone, which means literally like 80,000 authors and 80,000 books, SKUs that they have. They weren't ready to set a corporate policy. They had to set a corporate policy rather than say, oh, it makes sense, Mike. You know, it's great. We'll put up the, you know, your Bond guitar video and we'll put on your, your backyard slasher film and we'll put on, you know, the, the tape of you, you know, getting stoned with so-and-so and so-and-so, which made sense to me. And, you know, 
Um, it would be a selling point, and I'm ready to give it away as added value, even though this content costs a lot of money to produce. And they said, no, because we're just not that nimble, frankly. We just mm. can't do it for you and not until we have a corporate policy set. Whereas an independent, mm-hmm. I can pretty much do what I want. Absolutely. And and they're going to be the ones that are going to take people on like you. And Dan Brown's going to stay with his major publisher. And once this revolution hits and everyone is paying much less for a digital book and not buying the hardcovers, like the publishing industry is going to have to necessarily change. It's going to have to get smaller and just start supporting the best-selling authors. Well, of course, Dan Brown's never going to stop selling books. Oh, absolutely. No. And and they have the the perfect mechanism for selling Dan Brown books. I mean, Random House made buckets of money. And, and they had the distribution system. They had it all worked out. The television appearances, everything. They're, they're perfectly adapted for that. Is there a chance that uh, some... Uh, <laughs> Somebody um, swimming in the cesspool of publishing like I am will ever have a chance of being a success. Oh, absolutely. And you're going <laughs> to find... I think, I think you have the, that indie publishing label that doesn't exist yet. This indie mm-hmm. digital publishing label mm-hmm. that will be able to support somebody like you. Put that app out there. But and, a success on the level of Dan Brown. A success oh, on the no. level <laughs> of Stephen King. No, no, absolutely no. No, no. no, Stephen King, no. Dan Brown, maybe. But wait, let me ask. What is the name of your book? Well, uh, my last book is called I Have Fun Everywhere I Go. Savage Tales of Pot Porn, Punk Rock, Pro Wrestling, Evil Bosses, Dirty Apes, and the most notorious magazines in the world. I forgot something. <laughs> oh my God. No, that I is a never great... memorized And I, I don't even have it. And um, as soon as I finish the subtitle of the new book, I'll let you all know. <laughs> Can you give us a two minute uh, summary of WrestleMania? Uh, Undertaker one. It's true. Last time we were, we were Jason, we were talking about WrestleMania, big WrestleMania preview show. We have and, nine minutes and, left. And, so. and, and, well, you know, it's Easter, so what better thing to talk about than, than the zombie? The zombie, zombie wrestler. <laughs> you know, The Undertaker. Undefeated, 18-0. Uh, undefeated, 18-0. Retired Shawn Michaels, which thankfully means I never have to hear his crappy theme music again. Ugh, Shawn Michaels. Uh, never did like that cat. Is he a good wrestler? <laughs> fantastic. Uh, Shawn Michaels was fantastic. You just don't like the way he dressed. I, uh, you know, a shower cur- wrapping yourself in a shower curtain is not a way to come to the ring. <laughs> it just isn't. But he's a very popular guy. Is he a, was a Undertaker? Is he a good wrestler like Ric Flair? Like, does he have skills? The Undertaker's skill set is not a traditional scientific wrestling like Ric Flair is. He's not the kind of guy who knows a lot of holds and a lot of moves and a lot of fancy leg sweeps and this. But is a he's very straightforward, um, and people love his uh, tombstone pile driver. That's his big finishing move. And uh, what is that? He's going to have to call quits so- soon too. And zombie or no zombie, that guy's been in the business a long time, and he's being held together with like bubble gum and scotch tape. What's the closest he ever comes to losing? Is it like one, two, and then just as he's about, or is he always just dominant? A lot of close counts. I think this year's WrestleMania, um, mostly known, it wasn't as funny as last year's WrestleMania in the past. A lot of this has to do with the guys we're talking to is Linda McMahon, uh, who's uh, Vince McMahon, who's the um, CEO and the boss and mm-hmm. the visionary behind the World Wrestling uh, Federation or World Wrestling Entertainment, as they're called now. Um, she holds a corporate title as well. Uh, maybe she might be chief operating officer. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, she's running for the United States Senate. In Connecticut, what? in Connecticut, what? like United States Senate, not uh, not an assembly person in her local. <laughs> she wants the Senate. The Senate. She, she wants to push Lieberman. Not out. a congressperson. She's running for the United States Senate, um, and her she won't get past the Republican primaries because the questions that are being asked of her by her Republican opponents are, well, you're in a business um, where people die of drug abuse all the time, especially steroids, specifically steroids. Um, what did you basically? And um, this is brings me back to my question for the Pope. Maybe a good way to end this show uh, is: What did you know, and when did you know it? Hmm. And that's you know that's what I want to know. That's what I want to know from everybody. 
What did you know? I'm asking Steve Jobs. Jobs, you listening? What did you know and when did you know it? I'm sure he is listening. <laughs> That's why he gets paid so much. He knows it like about 10 years before most of us know it. So. Yeah. I got to say, the Apple experience for me has largely been a very positive one. Yeah. I mean, I only buy apples, and I mean, they're, they're really user-friendly, you know, it's like an extension of a home in a way on the, you know, whereas a PC, it's very cold looking, like they never put any effort to... I think that's the idea behind the whole Apple thing, is they're going to control your home. It's you a know, desktop. It's, it's, it's a smartphone, and it's going to be a smart TV. You know, I understand the iPad, what they're really working on is a coffee table that has the same interface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Seriously, that's it. Like, it's going to sit on your couch, there. and you're going to pick your movies, you're going to control your air conditioner, your lights, whatever it is, from the same interface that big touch screen but it's going to be the size of you know like an air hockey table that's what bo- <laughs> well at the beginning but that's what bothers me is I bet the Mac people already have that that one perfect thing that's just everything and has a little thing that you could pull as a phone and walk around the everything house you need to don't. do in your home will be controlled by Apple mm-hmm. you can touch this and you can call somebody you can touch this you book your airplane ticket. they you have it already they have the technology I'm sure well, I'm just sick of carrying my laptop around. That, that's the biggest problem that I have. And, and it's not a laptop yet, and it's going to be a few years before that iPad is there. But when it's there, that, that's going to make my life so much easier. How big is it now, the iPad? Uh, the iPad, it's uh, I, I, probably 15 inches, I think, long. It, it's, so it's is too it heavy. better than a Mac, uh, an iBook? I mean, like one of those... Du- it's, it's lighter than a laptop, but you can't mm-hmm. really do work on an iPad. Can no, you? no, you can't. Um, they, they, have a, they have a keyboard, and they have a simple word processing program, but you can't you, you can't do the kind of writing that, that you or I would have to do, or you it can't... It's like a Neanderthal. It's going to get phased out. Like you said, it does the least interesting thing of five different things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and that was to me the problem with the Kindle. I've played with the Kindle. It's really cool. If I were the kind of person who can, uh, if I were the kind who could of read, who could read, <laughs> if I were literate, um, if I um, had a real job that I needed to commute to, I'm, I'm, so, I'm spoiled. I walk across the park to, to my office, but um, I, I get it. You know, I get it. You know, if you spend a lot of time reading, especially you know on trains and buses, the Kindle is a great thing, and I get why why people re- really dig it. It's very. Um, yeah, it's primitive in the sense that it's not a functioning computer, mm-hmm. and I put that in quotes like what we expect from our iBooks. But if you just want to read pages in nice big, mm-hmm. you know, Times Roman twelve point type, it's great. I think what's going to really happen with the iPad and this technology, I think it's going to revolutionize the magazine business. Mm-hmm. I think full color, mm-hmm. four color magazines are going to find a very robust environment. Right. on iPads. Which supports and, your and, idea of, of smaller articles, lesser mm-hmm. content, not a whole massive And, and novel. they're really counting on it, too. Uh, USA Today yesterday had uh, guerrilla marketers on segways, like off-road segways with these big tires, driving around the Apple Store playing the iPad app for USA Today on this television hmm. on the segway. And they were just driving around doing wheelies and things on their segways. You know, it's sad. Everybody I know that works in magazines and publishing in general is uh, you know, sort of living in a constant state of you know having this great black cloud over their heads, the sort of Damocles is hanging over the whole damn industry, and it's really sad to me. I don't want to, um, I don't want to be that pessimistic. I don't want to be that guy who says, "Oh, the magazine industry is dead. We're being replaced. We're dinosaurs. We're headed for the boneyard." Because. People still want good content. I would hope they would. And, you know, look at gourmet clothes. It's never black or white. You know, you might see 10%, 12 20% of magazines close because it doesn't make sense. But, you know, Time Magazine, which is not news because everything's already known by the time it comes out there, it still will always have its place. Well, at some point... The, the, the twain shall meet with the immediacy of internet news and versus print journalism when what's now considered print journalism has a real direct connection to the internet. In other words, reading Time magazine 
on your iPad with photos, though, and in a way that's much more friendlier than just re- the way most text-driven right. you know, blogs look. Or like print versions of emails that, you know, it looks cool on the computer, but when you do the print version, you just But a magazine a... shouldn't just be reporting news. I mean, this is a question of journalism, what the quality of editorial is. It shouldn't just be, this happened yesterday, this happened five yeah. minutes what ago. What about global check it warming? There, I want to read, and this is why content's expensive, and why um, the New York Times is, is such a, a wonderful thing, because I mean, you might hate their their political views. You might you know disagree with them entirely. None of these listeners. But, <laughs> but uh, it's extremely difficult and expensive. Um, first of all, to have a news bureau anywhere, and you know the APs you know close their bureau you know in Beirut, and they're closing here. That's very expensive to do, um, and it's really awful to depend on a pool of reporters in foreign lands. But also to thoughtfully review an opera, to thoughtfully talk about food, to really get someone who knows their shit about movies or books well, or they the arts or any or, or, or business yeah. or, or sports. I mean, the sports reporting in the times big and picture and small picture, just like that's right, just like the tabloids here. Man, these guys are experts, and they're not just you know bloggers sitting at home doing it in their spare time and they deserve a salary and they deserve to be compensated and that's why it's so excellent and if everybody gets the idea that they don't have to pay for this yeah. of course you know the business is going to crash and burn but I the think it'll get to the free right now it is now it is now it is Okay, how long do you think that's going to last? No, they've got their. Uh, they're going to have a meter on it uh, in about six months. I think. Is that, gonna have a meter. Is that the model? Yeah, yeah they're going to have a meter on it, and so you can visit the site uh, fifteen times in a month or something, and after that, you start paying. Jeez, that's wow. like a hooker. Jeez, that is so like a hooker. Not, I mean, I've been told they're that, 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 that they're you know there's like on the clock, on the clock. <laughs> well, this has been a great show. I mean, um, not. You deserve a break. You have been amazing. He had like 500 tags. What are some of the best tags from today's show? Uh, let's see. Well, we've got um, Mike doesn't want to be pessimistic most recently. <laughs> it's a change um, in policy. That's right. Um, we've got the healing powers of the egg and the chicken. Oh. Um, keep it dank and dark. Keep um, it dank and dark. And uh, Chuck Berry naked. Chuck Baker. It's Nick another Blue Ribbon Day here. Awesome. This is uh, amazing content. So what do you want? Do you want to take a break, Patrick? Well, I think we might be done. I mean, he oh. has, we have cutting the curd, and uh, maybe we'll take a 30-second break, and uh, do we have closing comments? I bet we do. All right. So let's <laughs> come back, and we'll uh, go to 205. Uh, Nat, take us to Cherry Holmes land. Well, um, you can hear this show again on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. It's all tagged, um, so any of the big themes or words that were mentioned uh, can be seen there. It's a kind of, uh, we're kind of turning this radio show into a Kindle in a way, you know, a little 
little bitty segments. You know, for a, for a guy who makes his phone calls on that sort of like jackknife of a telephone, you really are at the, the cutting edge here with this radio, radio station. Well, and, I'll tell and you. And the Heritage Radio Network, Patrick. I mean, the best thing we did is, you know, Heather Hyman actually was responsible for introducing me to a whole world of like 21-year-old or just graduating <laughs> college who were actually at the top of their field but just starting out. And so we had a guy design the search engine for us. And I love that we didn't have to go with Google or any of these established ones and then you're just a part of their umbrella. It's our own little independent media world. So um, some closing comments. Uh, who should we start with? Um, anyone have uh, – we have four more minutes. We've been brought to you by TechServe. And Katie Kiefer will be back next week. Oh, thank you, Patrick, for having me. Thank Katie for uh, letting me sit in her chair. She's uh, getting her pictures taken for the calendar, I hope. Yes, absolutely, and uh, she's in London right now, uh, posing naked with she's those doing, uh, um, guards. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'll, something to look forward to. Yes, absolutely. She'll come back with plenty of stories. I like. She took her daughter to London because she didn't want uh, you know for her to only know New York. Well, we can. We'll have to. We'll talk about it. We do talk about it. The uh, dangers and travails of the internet and it sort of keeps you at home. You know, they said it was going to make the world a bigger place, and I will argue that. I think it's made it a much smaller place. Mm-hmm. All these people sitting at their desks. You know. Yeah. Like uh, pale social, social networking. Sick. Someone I was reading today again in the New York Post, my favorite uh, <laughs> information vehicle. Um, social networking is good, but no, you don't ever get to go home with a stranger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So uh, thanks again to Jason Bogue from uh, Galley Cat and Media Bistro. Jason, yeah. do you have a uh, closing uh, segment? Yeah, uh, no, yeah. Thanks for thanks for having me. It's so cool to meet this little community of people. I think that's the most important thing. And, and you guys do have your own indie publishing label here, and that's that's the thing. And I feel so lucky at GalleyCat.com to be covering this and watching these changes happen. It's 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 a really cool thing, and I think I got one of the best writing jobs on the internet. You definitely do, and uh, I hope everybody will visit you at uh, GalleyCat.com. One of the, the print media equivalent of the food world is barbecue, good old school stuff, low and slow. So um, this was a, a tough show for you to be on because we're talking about gardens and then uh, media and stuff. But uh, do you have any closing thoughts? And by the way, he's been on before, Scott, and he'll come on again and we'll have more of a meat theme. But um, what do you think? Um, yeah, it's a, I, I definitely think uh, I think barbecue is not going to die like the print media. I mean, that's. It's always going to be relevant, I and mean, there's no even way, in New York City. Even in New York, especially in New York City, it's mm-hmm. just I think it's uh, this people still trying to open barbecue restaurants. I think it's still a you know evolving thing. I think especially in New York City too, people really have a, have a hunger for that that which they cannot mm-hmm. have so easily. Mm-hmm. Are you allowed to ask answer this question? Um, if Rub is closed, where and you want barbecue, where do you go? Ooh, that's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> oof. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, probably either Hill Country in Manhattan, or there's a new place that just opened. Robbie Richter and Zach Palaccio just opened up a place called Fatty Q. Oh yeah, here in Williamsburg. In, yeah, right in Williamsburg. Have I haven't gotten there? there yet. No, yeah, I, I mean either. I've had. I, I'm. I've been mm. friends with those guys for a while, so I mean I've had. I've I, had some of the stuff. It's. it's I, I can really testify. Good. It's good. It's Texas. It's Texas style. It's. Uh, it's a great space. Good vibe. Zach Palaccio and, and, was and, on here talking about and, that a couple of days ago. Uh, yeah, pretty cool it's concept. Great. No. And um, I'm gonna and see. The, I'm gonna see you tomorrow. I'm going to rub for lunch tomorrow. Oh, fantastic! Absolutely. I'll be there. All what right. about uh, upstate New York? Is there a bona fide upstate New York tradition? Uh, as far as barbecue, like Texas style. Well, North actually, Carolina, yes, East there is. West. It's funny that you mentioned that. We actually have in uh, the area I'm from. We have what we call Cornell Chicken Barbecue. Hmm. It's uh, it was a 
a way of doing barbecue invented by uh, Robert Baker in the 1950s. They found there was a huge surplus of chicken in the country. So what he did was he wrote this recipe for, and he was a professor of agriculture at Cornell, that's where the name comes from, and he wrote this recipe for this Cornell barbecue chicken and just released it out to the public. And it's just like this, it's just really simple. It's a mixture, of, it's a multiplication of oil, vinegar with some egg to, as the emulsification agent, and then it's like mm-hmm. some poultry seasoning, salt and pepper. And then you just marinate it overnight, and then you grill it over charcoal, and it's like fantastic. Hmm. I mean, it's like it's it's uh, it's it's a dying art, really. I mean, people aren't doing it the way it should be done up there. Uh, it's basically like you know, firehouses do it. There's no real restaurants doing it. Um, but- I'm bringing it back, the Cornell chicken. Yeah, hmm. that's one smart chicken, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks for uh, everybody being on. It was a real interesting show. These were great weeks, Mike. Thank you for saving the show, the main yeah. course. <laughs> My pleasure. It would have been you so give me bad. Too much credit. No, really. Um, and uh, I'm sure everybody listening. Um, I'm sure the uh, the dozen people listening are. Where is Katie? Where is Katie? No, I don't think there's a lot more than a dozen. We probably have, if you consider the blogs and stuff, I would say maybe five to ten thousand people will hear this show over the next seven days. That's fantastic. In some form. And I love them all. Whether it be a summary of it or, or, or something, but something significant. Anyway, we will be back next week. Katie has planned, I think, the next four hundred weeks of the main course with guests and stuff and Mike obviously you're a big part of that so I'll be seeing you again and thanks Nat for engineering and producing I'll buy your lonesome right on